Hello, family and friends. Welcome to another episode of Talks with Lim Lee. I'm your host. I'm a software engineer and have a degree in computer networks. Good morning. Uh, I am Emmett Morgan. I have a degree in accounting from San Diego State. Currently doing uh, real estate, <laughs> helping people buy and sell homes. In Las Vegas. In Las Vegas. <laughs> And our guest. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Mila Simic. I'm a PhD. I work at uh, UCSF as a scientist. I got my uh, degree in uh, genetics. Excellent. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so, are we supposed to call you Doctor uh, Simic now? The no, you just Mila. <laughs> <this morning. laughs> are, are you speaking to us from San Francisco currently? Is this your location? Yes. Okay. Yes. Excellent. I'm in San Francisco right now. So you just published a paper. Is is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's we just got it out uh, on Thursday. How huge is that for you? So that's like the one of the ways, and that's probably the, the most important uh, way of actually showing to the community that you are, as, uh, you know, a good scientist, and that's how you publicize your work. Because that's like it goes through different processes, and what's what we call the peer reviewing process, where your peers basically uh, will challenge. Uh, your research um so uh, other genetic doctors will look at your studies and your conclusions and say ah this is bullshit or seems pretty legit exactly that's that, that's how it works and that's how you you, you make uh this uh research legit in our field mm. so basically what you would do is you work on your project you have a bunch of uh, data you make make a story out of it uh you make it uh follow uh, a certain narrative and you submit that to uh, journals, uh, scientific journals, who will send it out for review to other peers, and other mm. peers will evaluate your work, say, oh, you're missing this, I don't think your hypothesis is right, I think your conclusion is wrong, can you address this and this and this, and yeah. then you will come back, the editor will decide if it's uh, good enough or not, you have, to, you have the time to review, usually, and then if it meets uh, the expectations from the editor and also from the reviewers when it gets published. Do the re do the reviewers sign off like, you know, Dr. Johnson in Minnesota is like, oh, okay, so that looks good. So that's a very good uh, good point because so far uh, the only person who I mean it depends where you actually are trying to submit like mm. which journal you submit it to. Uh, some do not provide who actually. Uh, ah did the review process so it's anonymous but uh, other journals will give actually the full list of the people who actually reviewed the paper so and uh, like eLife is one of them who uh, who try to actually uh, change that because you don't want people to uh, you want you want you want to have a, like conflict of interest you also want people to you know destroy your story just because they hate you and things mm. like that so you there are different ways that people try to address those issues. And one of them is actually listing the names after the entire process is done. Yeah. The names are listed who reviewed the, those papers. I think that's an interesting way of uh, avoiding those issues. Yeah, this, this is interesting for us because we understand the idea of uh, research and peer review. But as far as what it actually looks like to hear it from a doctor is something that most of us don't interact with. So... Okay. What you described so far, it makes me wonder, do you have like genetic doctor enemies in other 
other colleges. So you always <laughs> that looked like a yes. <laughs> no, so that, so that, that's a good thing. That motherfucker like, Johnson. <laughs> you always have like we always make fun of uh, reviewer three, who's like the the worst reviewer. So usually uh, you assign to three people usually like uh -huh. uh, so you review one, two, three, and we, it's always funny because like you know of course I mean you, review one would be really nice. Oh, I love the work. Blah blah blah. The second one will be kind of, uh, and the third one will be like, this is all bullshit. Oh. But, I mean, it usually goes like, it can go better, it can go worse, but it's, uh, it, it's always something that's... Wait, so does the journal select who's reviewing? Yes, the editor okay. usually will send it out. So you can make a list of people you wish uh, to review your paper, and you can also make a list of people should not who should not... <laughs> and you should explain why you think they should not. And usually uh, it's Arabic because there's a conflict of interest. Yeah. Or um or there's like some issues going on between uh you two or Yeah, he, like he thinks I'm after his wife. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, the thing is like you can always like I mean you're always competing like worldwide. Uh, like the topics, some of the Topics. I mean, a lot of the topics are very similar, and you're always competing with other labs. So yeah. it's very likely that somebody else is doing something very similar. So, from, oh, so for, uh, um, sorry to, uh, if I cut you off. Uh, continue going. Uh, if no, no, no. Uh, so from the outside world, if someone were to not, un um, they understand public uh, publishing, and then that there's peer review. How could you, pr if they if they didn't believe it or something, how could you? describe to them that it is not uh, where people don't falsify a, re a peer review or someone publishes something crappy and then somehow other people uh, say that is a good uh, published paper how, how would you prove that to them or describe to them like, like how do you explain the legitimacy of this process to a non-educated person uh, I mean the peer review process itself relies on on the fact that you involve enough people to confront the ideas mm. and challenge the ideas, challenge the conclusions. And they are like the reviewers actually need to judge whatever like the statistical significance of your work, make sure that what you're showing is actually done in enough repeats, enough times, that this is actually solid data that things make sense overall. And that's how you things get out and are like legitimized. Gotcha. So, so for so for all research scientists, do you have to in effect become somewhat of a statistician? You know, at the very least, you have to understand, you know, big you sets do. of data and how to analyze them. Right? Is that is so? That you do. Um, whenever you publish something, I mean, when it involves numbers and. Uh, and, and things like that, you always need to have, whatever you provide, you provide usually a mean with a standard deviation, and you, you're supposed to also do a statistical test on yeah. what you've done to, uh, to actually see if what you observe is actually different or if it's the same. So yeah. you do need to have some background uh, stats, not like a huge background, but enough yeah. to actually, because everything relies on uh averages right at the end of the day is you're comparing things and you want to ask oh does my drug work yeah so you you give one group 
the placebo, the, the one you give the drug, and you measure X, Y, Z, like whatever uh, performance you're interested in, and you ask at the end of the day, is this different from this one? So if we take only one person and another person, it might be different, but that doesn't tell me anything. I need like a thousand people. I need like yeah. more people. So when I do an average, I know that average is actually strong and it obeys some statistical laws, like a Gaussian distribution, which are mathematically very well described. And then you can make statistical comparisons. Yeah. And this statistical comparison is actually going to be very, very, very strong. See, yeah, you can't be a math idiot. If you're doing some some scientific work, well, you shouldn't be. You should be like pretty good. <laughs> yes, you should know. I, I mean, even though you like, even though you might not do those analysis yourself, uh, I see. Yeah. You should be able to understand those. Yeah, but I think it's you know it's okay. I'm back. Yeah, you're back. Now I was saying like yeah, I think it's always important for anyone who does science to have those uh, uh, basic knowledge of statistics. Yeah. Because that's at the end of the day, you want to remove all the, I would say, all the bias from yeah. the human, you know, like you cannot just say like, oh, I saw this is different. I mean, that's not good enough to convince someone. I want to see numbers. I want to see a mathematical demonstration pretty much that what you're showing me here is actually different. Yeah. So that, that's like a, it's like a basic human fault, right? Is uh, a lot of people are like, Oh, I swear to God, I saw a ghost one time. I'm very sure that ghosts exist because I saw one. But yeah, and you think and you think about it, it's kind of like terrifying. That's so we know like those are like the most unreliable. Yeah, like you know, the, the the only best evidence is actually numbers and actually showing like pictures and things like that. Yeah, you think about like the testimonies for trials are usually the ones that are like have a huge, uh, actually, con I mean, importance on whatever the output is, it's actually scary. Because things a lot of relies on like, oh, I saw this, oh, I heard that. Right. It's scientifically, it's like, no, Yeah. show we, me the numbers, show, show me the, the demonstration. We want to see lots of pictures of lots of ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what did you uh, publish? What was the kind of... Uh, summary of the things that you discovered and or um your what, data what genetic secrets are you uncovering for us okay so what, what we do i mean my yeah as i said like my uh, phd and uh uh my background is in genetics but what i'm doing currently is uh working on synthetic biology synthetic and basically uh so the idea here is that we try to take advantage of what nature has made already and repurpose it for uh, re-engineering. So we want to reuse some of those things that nature came up with. Like if you heard about CRISPR-Cas9, mm -hmm. that's, that's something uh, for genome editing, that's something that, you know, is present in bacteria. And, you know, in terms, if you think about on the engineering point of view, you can, you, you, you already can sense that, oh, we could reuse this for making something different that has never been done before. And we can use it as a new tool. So, so what I'm doing is mostly like a bioengineering approach mm. where we use, uh, we focus most on immune cells uh, that we try to uh, tweak so they can better kill cancers. Oh. And what I, what I worked on was uh, applying some of those tools 
that's actually are capable of uh, killing cancer, such as a glioblastoma, which is a brain cancer. And uh, the idea that a lot of like challenging, I mean, glioblastoma has like usually a very poor outcome as a, as a cancer. It's not treatable really. You can, I mean, you can like cut the- So if you get brain cancer right now, you're in trouble. There's no, there's no good- that it's the your median survival is about like 14 months all right yeah it's, it's a bad prognosis get get on the bucket list get working it's really bad. yeah so one of the things that we worked on was try to overcome some challenges that are inherent to those cancers uh, and uh recently there's been a lot of uh enthusiasm with about car t cells i don't know if you heard about that mm-hmm. So for cancer therapy, uh, CAR T cell stands for chimeric antigen receptor T cells. So chimeric antigen receptor is basically a receptor that was, it it relies on like what the immune system would actually um, do to attack uh, uh, things that are um, foreign to the body. You, so the way it works is usually the immune system recognizes things that are we call non-self. They have those antigens. So if there's a bacteria, if there's a virus coming in, it's you have the immune system that explores that, that usually uh, scouts your body. And as soon as it finds something that's unusual, that's something that should not be there. Yeah. Then it starts to attack, uh, launching an attack on it. But the receptors, whatever the ways uh, those. T cells are capable of recognizing things that are not cells. We can actually, people have re-engineered it in the lab to make it a little bit easier to work with. So basically now you, you can re-engineer. So you can take uh, T cells, you know what T cells are? Uh, is that like in the white blood cells? That's what's yes. fighting? So, okay, keep asking questions. Like when, when, when I use a word or like things that are- Well, let's, st- yeah, let's start with, um, so for our, for our audience, CRISPR, uh, is it, un- is it correct to understand that this is a tool for allowing you to edit the genome of a single cell? Is that like the genetic code in a cell, CRISPR allows you to make some changes to that code? Is that a correct way? Yeah, to that's, that's it? correct. So CRISPR is basically, is basically just like, uh, and it's on the scale of cutting. DNA. So that's mm-hmm. how bacteria actually protect themselves from viruses. Chop them so up. originally, like the, how it was discovered, uh, so bacteria actually get infected by viruses. Ah. And a way of like the bacteria itself to defend it, uh, its own, I mean, its genome is actually as soon as it finds a sequence that's actually not supposed to be there, that's not your sequence, starts to cut that sequence okay. and destroys it. So that's like the viral sequence will be attacked and then just like cut it so you escape uh infection that's actually kind of a very primitive immune system or whatever it's not really an immune system but it's a way of like the bacteria defense itself so yes so now like we can take the same uh crispr that enzyme make the protein or um and now use the fact that you can couple it with uh actually a sequence that recognizes that matches another sequence that you want to cut yeah. in your genome. And now you have both the recognition and the enzyme that cuts. Mm-hmm. So the so that complex is now going to go into your DNA, 
when it finds like the sequence that pairs, that matches exactly, because the DNA will match with like 80, I mean, you have your base pairs, so 80 match it, match together, and, and CG like match together. So you have like about 20 uh, uh, letters. Yeah. And when you find the exact match, or more as the exact match, then you can cut. And that's yeah. what CRISPR Cas9 does. So it's and then you can come up with a because the cells will not just leave your DNA broken yeah. like this. You will try to repair it. Mm. So you can either get another template DNA that you want to be changed. So you basically have pretty much a long string of DNA with a change that you're interested in introducing in the cell. And you will just put that together with the CRISPR-Cas9 uh, complex. And the cell now will find, will look for anything that's uh, similar so it can repair itself. Mm. The DNA needs to be repaired, it's been cut. And so by using, taking advantage of that uh, machinery of like of, uh, the, of the yourself repairing itself, mm -hmm. you can introduce a new point mutation or you can introduce an entire gene if you're interested and you can change things like that. So, so in your case, you're targeting brain cancer cells and saying, mm -hmm. hey, we want to cut out uh, part of this bad DNA and we're going to instruct you. Nope, not correct. <laughs> no, 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 sorry. <laughs> I'm actually CRISPR-Cas9 for other reasons, but not for my work. For oh, my okay, work, okay. actually, um, no. So for, for, for my work, what, what we've done basically, so over the last couple of probably a decade now, like a couple of decades, there has been like, really new treatments, pretty amazing, uh, that are called CAR-T cell therapy for cancers. Oh, that's so what you're talking about, yeah. So CRISPR is old, old stuff, and you're on the cutting edge oh, of gene. It's different. It's a, it's a, diff it's a parallel universe. Gotcha. So different, um, different tool with different capabilities. Yes, exactly. Okay. Now for cancer therapy, um, so the CAR-T cells, which are this, uh, chimeric antigen receptors that uh, that have been uh, developed have been shown like pretty amazing results for leukemias, for example. So mm -hmm. a lot of the, the leukemias were treated by chemo. Uh, you had a lot of some uh, uh, percentage of people who relapse and those people were pretty much uh, sentenced to death at that point. But yeah. with this new way of, uh, of using your T cells where basically we take T cells from it, from the patients, bring them to lab, re-engineer them in a way that now we have that chimeric antigen receptor mm -hmm. that's going to get into the cell that's now able to recognize specifically the cancer antigen. Mm. And now you reintroduce that in the in the patients, and now those T cells, which are your own T cells, but they've been tweaked now to attack the cancer. So now those T cells will be able to recognize your ca the cancer. That's fantastic. Yeah, so that's a pre, uh, I mean, that literally has been, I mean, revolutionizing the, the, the cancer therapy over the last uh, couple of years. It's been FDA approved. It's like, it's extremely expensive for now yeah. for leukemia's applications. But things are, I mean, I'm sure like in the long run, things are going to go down. But that being said, that's like just that's leukemia, and there's like still a lot of challenges with with solid tumors, which is why we we are interested in glioblastoma mm. uh, as a as a treatment. And all of these technologies rely on one fact, which is you need to find what makes the cancer. Uh, you need to find the antigen that's specific to the cancer. Mm. 
So you need to instruct your T cell to go kill a particular cell based on something that's a tag that's on the surface. And that tag needs to be only on cancer cells. Because if right. it's not on cancer cells, you're going to start killing healthy tissue. And that, that's the problem with chemo, right? Because chemo is not targeted cell it's by cell. It's not super targeted. No, it's yeah. not. Okay. That's a huge uh, result of like, uh, cytotoxicity, uh, of target toxicity, because it just will slow down or will kill anything that's, I mean, resulting uh, death of cells that are dividing actively. Yeah. So you're literally out here curing cancer. This is a trying. Big, yeah, it's a big thing in our society. So this is for anybody watching. This is a dude that's out here trying to cure cancer for us. This is fantastic. Sorry, I get excited, so I don't mean oh, to take over. No, that. no, go for it, man. <laughs> no, I'm that that statement alone. That that's great. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a long it's a long road. It's like there's a lot of challenges for cancer. As you can think about it, cancer is not just so. One of the biggest challenges that we have is finding those what makes cancer specific. So how do you target? So you need to find that specific tag mm-hmm. that's only on cancer cells, right? So you can spare the healthy tissue. But at the same time, you need to, that tag needs to be on all the cancer cells. Yeah. But otherwise, if you even if there's one that's, you know, they multiply uh, escapes, it will come back. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a question of time. So you need to ensure that you basically clear everything. So there has been like new tools that have been engineered well, basically now you can make combinatorial uh, approaches. Like you can make decisions. You can instruct the T cells to make boolean decisions. Basically, you can program the, program the T cells exactly for different scenarios. Yes. So basically, you can ask. You can now like instead of having only one thing to target, you can say like, oh, if you have A and B, then you can kill. Mm. Which actually, if you think about it, now that opens up like a two dimensional space mm-hmm. where you can have uh, A and B and only you, you will rely on the fact that only cancer cells will have A and B. Yes. And that like you can have A somewhere else or B somewhere else in a healthy tissue, but it's not going to kill it because you need A and B. Yeah. You don't want to kill your brain cancer if it accidentally also kills eyeballs. Yeah. But if when it comes to, you know, sometimes if it, when it comes like to, you know, surviving, uh, or losing maybe another tissue, sometimes you can afford that. And that's uh, actually yeah. what's, and actually that's the case for uh, leukemia because the antigens that's, that's used to actually kill. So it's a leukemia, it's, um, is actually targeting. So the, the scar treatment are targeting a protein that's also present on B cells, B cells. Yes, your B cells. Okay. So basically you can also, so it will result in killing the cancer, but it will also result in killing your B cells, which is, so the B cells are the ones that are producing antibodies. Mm-hmm. So it's not the target that's been using so far for leukemia is also a target, like the tag mm-hmm. is also present on B cells, your healthy B cells. Yeah. So in that case, if you think about it, it's, you will destroy your B cells also, but it's okay. It's not too bad to not have B cells. It's not great. Yeah. It's not that bad because the alternative is death. Yeah. So you can still live perfectly fine. I mean, you need to, you know, <laughs> better than dead. Be- <laughs> not <exactly>. dead. 
Yeah. I mean, your B cells are the ones that make, uh, that secrete uh, antibodies. Gotcha. So it's not great not to have antibodies, but you can still uh, live yeah. without. While working on this stuff, do you happen to feel that there's a race, as in there's other scientists and doctors doing all this research? Do you feel someone's close to you when you're doing your research, or do you feel like you're on the bleeding edge where you kind of don't have any competition? No, I, like it, it's actually a very hot field, and there's a lot of competition. And uh, so the approaches are going to be maybe different, but they look very similar overall. So you will definitely, um, so yeah, we, we always like, uh, I think like every sign is worried about being scooped. That's mm. how we call, uh, we usually uh, say, so when, if somebody else publishes before you on the mm. same topic, which kills the novelty for you. Oh, totally. Yeah. So we always worried about that. And a lot of our, you know, especially in bioengineering where you get things move very, very fast. Yeah. You need to be more secret, secretive about, or like wait pre-emergent at the very, very end to actually show your data or like discuss those things. So what did, what was your approach that made it so, um, that you're, that, what did you publish on? Like, what was your approach to get to the answer or the data that you ended up publishing? What made it uh, so different that, um, maybe other scientists weren't doing? So we use that system, basically that uh, combinatorial approach where we can basically instruct the T cells mm. to sense the environment and based on the cues that it senses, can make a decision whether it's going to kill or not. And one of, like one of the Meyer projects I had was that relying on the fact that glioblastoma is a cancer of the brain that doesn't metastasize. So anything outside, it, it will not, it usually would not go out, out, outside of the brain. It's very, very rare. Mm. So what if we can instruct the T cell, which will go anywhere in your body, but when it feels that it's in the brain, knows it's in the brain, now can start killing the cancer. So that's, that was my approach uh, for that uh, project where basically I can get the T cell to sense that it's in the brain and knows it's in the brain, and now when it's in the brain, can start killing the, the cancer. And the way it's killing, it's actually the tag that's being used is a tag that potentially can be expressed somewhere else in the body. Mm -hmm. But because it's instructing the T cell, like it's only when you are in the brain that you can now kill anything that has that tag. That sounds pretty fantastic. So it's like going from a shotgun to a programmed sniper rifle. You're sniping in the brain. <laughs> sniping in the brain on target. <laughs> well, no, no, seriously, though. So when you publish, do you feel like a badass? Like, man, this all worked. Uh, you know, this is this is really something awesome. Does that make, does it feel like a, a, a crowning achievement? Is this a, a big accomplishment? Is this it a, is a big accomplishment. That's because yeah. at the end of the day, that's how you judged uh, by the community. Yeah. So... I would say people can show work uh, that are not published and it's exciting by the end of the day. Mm. You need a reviewing process, which kind of seals the legitimate, like it makes it legit. And yeah. now it's out in the world and for people to yes, comment on this it. This is real read. science, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, you can then like, then you can definitely, uh, yeah, it, 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 it feels great. That's cool, man. 
where do you see uh, this? Like, is this so bleeding edge where it's going to take five to 10 years before we might see this in the public space per se? Or do you see what? Or as a real treatment Yeah. for people with brain cancer? Yeah. So if somebody gets brain cancer, you know, will it be, well, it won't be tomorrow. So in a couple of years, could somebody get this treatment or what's the process to get from, from research yeah. to. So right now, like that's one of the great things that because we work closely with uh, clinicians who are actually very excited about uh, those applications and especially for CAR T cell therapy and cancers, uh, things move really fast mm -hmm. and we are uh, pushing towards clinical trials uh, for one of those. Um, so in the paper, there's like two approaches that we used, but in, in, we'll kind of like same using like this uh, approach of combinatorial um, sensing uh, evaluation. So basically, uh, I mean, a lot of it, you know, requires a lot of money. Clinical yeah. drugs are like very, very expensive. So what's what the, my um, my boss and like the other uh, clinicians are, are doing who are involved in that project yeah. is actually uh, requesting for funding and uh, mm -hmm. getting things moving forward uh, so we can actually eventually get this, you know, phase one or like get it started for clinical trial. So, so a clinical trial, is it, hey, I got to find, you know, a thousand people with this brain cancer? And then we're so basically, yeah, it's kind of, uh, so you would come up with a protocol where basically you would say, okay, people who fail this and this and this therapy mm. will be eligible for this, or like, these are the criteria that we're looking uh, for people who uh, would be interested in a clinical trial, Yeah, uh, being part of the clinical trial. And uh, yeah, like you need to recruit a lot of people and that's usually, um, that's probably like the most challenging part because, you know, there's quite a bit of people with uh, glioblastoma, but uh, not that many. So mm -hmm. also we need special, like in the protocol that we're interested to apply is for a subset of people who have glioblastoma, so it's not everybody. Right. So that kind of, you know, makes it smaller, uh, the pool smaller and smaller. Do you think your success will feel more gray and less white and black in the sense of, uh, say five years from now, someone, uh, you've, or maybe 10 years, you've gone through clinical trials and it's been approved. And then, um, someone gets saved. Uh, they had brain cancer and then your, what your research did save someone, but will it be so, um, far away? Like it's jumped from company to company that purchased, I don't know if they would buy your, your research and then is it your, your success and your, your celebration will be more gray and not black and white. Does, if you understand my question. I think at one point, like, like things are not going to be, uh, it's not something I will be following up because I'm not, um, oh. like the clinical, uh, aspect of clinical applications is not something necessarily I, I have the credentials for. I'm more like on the, like early on. So I would not like follow that until the, every single step because other people will, you know, uh, have more experience for that particular process. Cause it, it is, you know, you come for products, you need to, uh, oh, here. <laughs> ah, Hello. <laughs> the cussing bird is here. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I think you, you would, you, you would hear the results of the clinical trial though, right? You'd be like, eventually. Yeah. 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 So, 
So that would be a day to pop champagne, I think, if you hear, oh, you know, some people that would have otherwise died got to use this new treatment and survived, right? That would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. We've so right now, I think we're trying to keep it more like in the in the academic mm-hmm. uh, clinical trial, which is really hard because usually academia does not have that much money to actually fund those clinical trials. Mm-hmm. They usually ends up being uh, tested by other uh, big groups, but also big groups are not necessarily interested in. I mean, you know, they have their own interests. Yeah. Uh, they're not. We need to find a market. If you think about uh, uh, the economics behind that, yeah. so if the market is not like big, they might not be interested in, in using, you know, in deploying or putting putting efforts uh, for that disease. Yeah, nobody cares about brain cancer until it's too late, right? Mm. Like, oh, I really care about brain cancer now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of yeah. a sudden, <laughs> people, you people, humans, we don't put money where where we need to ahead of time most of the time, so. Um, yeah, but good. also like for companies, I think like there's a big, uh, you know, it's a lot of investment. It costs mm-hmm. a lot of money, and we probably won't get that money back for mm-hmm. maybe for like that particular cancer. Yeah. It's all always like you know, I mean, you know, we always think about it as who are the uh, customers or mm-hmm. who are or what is your target audience or so. Yeah. Are you going to make enough money out of it? Are you so you invested millions, I mean dozens of millions on on the product, mm. and this they expect money to come back, right? Yeah, and that's like you know when things are private, that's how it looks like. But if you're in an academic setting, uh, you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, like not not that it doesn't you don't have to be profitable. Like if you are, that's great, but that's not necessarily what you're looking for. Yeah, purely the research. Oh, so earlier when you said the, I think um, a a few sentences ago, you said you're going to try to keep in the academic uh, area. So that's why you're saying that probably due to the funding, it'll make it. Is it going to make it easier for it to grow? Is that what you're getting at? So I think so. It's not like something I I'm in charge. So that's more like my. uh, my like the bosses that are interested in in that and i think that's for that very particular uh, applications uh there is like a lot of uh i think we want they want to have it funded through uh within the academic space at, at ucsf or maybe mm-hmm. uh reaching out to other universities i i, I don't know what's the, um, the strategy yet but yeah i i, I think they we just Having it in the academic world is just uh, maybe just easier actually to go all the way through the entire process. Probably, but it's funding. more challenging because the funding is not because uh, 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 you need like a lot of money, and academic world does not have as much money as uh, what industry would have. Gotcha. Is there a, uh, so when a smaller you- checkbook? <laughs> yeah, it is. When you say brain cancer, and sorry if, if any of my questions are stupid, is there is there specific brain cancers, a plural, or is or is brain cancer in general just lumped into one term? Is there different types of brain cancers? So there are, yeah, you have like different types of brain cancers. Um, uh, yeah, glioblastoma is is one of them. Uh, you have other types that are affecting different regions of the brain. Uh, you have other ones that are uh, more like maybe more diffuse. So glioblastoma tends to be, I mean, it also can be diffuse, but 
you, know, you have different sub, uh, subtypes depending on you know how they um, what's the origin of that cancer and things like that. So does your research target all the brain cancers or is it specifically a, cer a certain subset? So we we tested it on one subset, but the strategy can be uh, generalized to other subsets. And that's uh -huh. oh wow, another, that's awesome. Another avenue that we are actually exploring for other types of cancers. What are so some yeah, of the, the recipes? Is you can reuse the same recipe. It's programmable. Yeah, exactly. And um, that's one of the great things. Is it's programmable. It's also very versatile. Uh, so. I tell you what, if, if you can get it to work on an app on your phone, it'll sell like crazy. Yeah, you can just like, <laughs> like <Yeah>. dial up. <laughs> what, what I mean, oh, go ahead. But it is like at the end of the day, like a way of thinking about it, because because it's it's very modular. The yeah. way it's, uh, the design is is basically you can just say like, oh, I want this, this, and this, and you know, you can just like change the parts. Yeah. And all the combination that you want, and test that for the cancer you are interested in. Mm. What were some of the uh, like achievements that you felt and successes during during that project? Some of the highlights for you, dude. He's curing brain cancer. <laughs> well, there's probably certain little stories that he has in, in between. I would think. No, I think like the like it, the great feelings is when. So I think so. We start testing those. I would call them circuits. I mean, literally because it's like a, an, an actual circuit. So we test those in vitro. Uh, so just in the on cells and like test them like in a dish, make sure that things work. So the big jump is when you test that in the, in an animal, like in a mouse. And when you see actually the cancer shrinking, it's actually uh, very, very exciting because uh, you are, yeah. you see it's shrinking and uh, the other group that get got the placebo keeps like going up and those will die within maybe 20 days and your other mice that got the, the therapy, they're alive and it's been two months. Yeah. That's kind of like the super exciting to see that. Wait, so how do you get uh, your lab mice to get glioblastoma brain cancer? So you inject those mice. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm serious. No, no, I, I, was, I was laughing at the answer because I, I figured that was the answer to inject the mice with, with oh, cancer. Here's some brain cancer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds fucked up, but I mean, it's it's you got to test on something to save humans eventually. So it, it makes sense. I'm just laughing at the injecting something with brain cancer. Yeah. Humans don't really like yeah. mice. <laughs> I think that's why we have cats is because we're anti-mice. Anti-mice. Yeah. It, as a population, as a world. Yeah. I'm no, not we have unfortunately to uh, uh, use a model or organism and it, you know, it's always like a big debate on what's ethical and what's not what's unethical and I you know you come to a point where like like you need to test and you cannot go right right in the human that would that would not be ethical and oftentimes I can end up like doing the the least unethical thing which is you know testing on another um being and here we are with talking on mice. Yeah. Uh, but they have, they have a pretty good life up to that point, right? They get to have free cheese and they get to run in a maze. And yeah, don't have to worry about no, cats. No, that's uh, it's not that exciting. <laughs> Mouse life. <laughs> is, no. is there any like inside stories where like a, a, a 
a laboratory person takes care of that mice and they really love them and then they got injected with cancer and then the treatment doesn't go well then that mice dies and the the laboratory person starts crying is there anything like that no like i think it's <laughs> you can't get it's attached really hard to, uh, it's really hard to bond with one mouse because they all look <laughs> just don't name it ben if you name your mouse ben you're toast yeah uh, so ra random story. So ten years ago, when when uh, me and you were, uh, when all three of us were living at, at Holly's place, um, I remember asking you about what you do. Uh, one night, I think you came home, and I was sitting at the dinner table, and you said that you're you're, if I remember correctly, uh, bio. Um, no, that was ten years ago. Of course, you don't remember. Correctly. Yeah, biological something uh, researcher, and then then I. I think I asked something to the extent of, well, what does that, what, what is a bio sniper? <laughs> Back then I asked what, yeah, what does that mean to us common people? And for some reason at that, during that conversation, all I remember is you said, it's good to wash fruit before you eat it. Cause, and in a microscope, microscope, you could see all the tiny, tiny little, I guess, either creatures or things that are growing. Um, if, uh, I'm just I just brought up that story to see if it um, brings up any thoughts in your mind back then. So to think of your journey then to now from from that. Are you still washing your fruit? <laughs> I'm still washing my fruit. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I don't remember like what would be the um, reason why I mentioned that. Like one thing that comes to my mind is maybe if I mention some of the um, animal models we work I was working on. Um, which is a, a tiny little worm that on which you can study aging. Mm, so ah. if you want to study aging, uh, of course you need to find, like especially in the lab, you need to think about a model where things die fast because yeah. you don't want to be waiting ah. for years. Um, <laughs> it's got another you know, 18 years to go. <laughs> <we're> gonna... uh, <laughs> so basically, yeah, we, um, so you have different model organisms, of course, mice, are one of them, but they still live pretty long. They live two years and a half on average, uh, which is a long time. Uh, you know, if the experiment didn't work, you'll know it in two years, which is yeah. a long time. So you can use other model organisms that have a life cycle that's uh, much faster. And one of them is that tiny worm called C. elegans. And uh, it's literally like one millimeter, like it's like that, like that big, yeah. like tiny. And they do live actually on, uh, fruits you can find some on fruits and things like that so me all like in the dirt and, and things like that so i don't know if that was like the reason why i said that because <laughs> you're because you're thinking about worms and working with worms all the time it makes you yeah i was like yeah wash, wash your fruit get rid of those worms <laughs> i mean it doesn't matter you can always eat them so so worms uh are not mammals but their genes are similar enough for us to learn some things about aging is that so exactly so that's like the the idea is always um we rely on the fact that we all evolutionary coming from the same ancestors and we are more or less, uh, I mean, we are different, uh, because our shared common ancestor is ever further away mm -hmm. in, uh, between, uh, between us. So of yeah. course we and mice, we share one, that's probably a couple of hundreds of millions, probably like a couple of dozens of millions, uh, uh, years ago. But the worm is probably hundreds of millions years ago. So this further away. 
You have to go but, further back to find a common ancestor with a worm. Yeah, so okay. which make, makes it like less interesting compared to the mouse, but it's more interesting. All I mean, there's still like some a lot of common genes that are that we share a lot of like common processes that are that are very similar. Yeah, and it's it's easier to take something that's like slightly simpler to learn things, and then try to move on something different and that's more complex. Right, and make your way like that to uh, applying it to uh, to humans. Yeah, so don't start with elephants. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't yeah don't start with something too complicated. Do you happen to have a perspective or opinion on that state? Uh, I think that statement where they say apes, certain apes and humans share ninety nine point four percent of genes. What's your perspective on oh, that? Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, the closest that. Uh, uh, to us is uh, chimpanzees and bonobos. They we share, uh, I think, ninety eight percent of our genome. So when we say ninety eight percent, we means uh, sequence similarities. So if you take your DNA and uh, the one from a chimpanzee, and you try to pair it, you you'll have a lot of common things. You have some that are different, but you have like on average ninety eight percent. Uh, similarities, mm. but those two percent, as you can see, are good, are uh, like huge mm -hmm. in terms of uh, differences between us and the and the and the chimpanzees. So that's, I mean, that, that just like a scientific fact is like you also need like very little changes to make big differences. That's also mm -hmm. what, what, what what it means. Yeah, because chimps are super strong, right? They're they're ripped. Yeah, they're like way stronger than us. So could conceivably in a, in a sci-fi future, could we uh, use some gene editing and inject it in me and give me chimp strength? Well, I mean, in theory, everything is possible, but <laughs> you know, it's like, um, but then I will also <laughs> get some other behaviors as well. <laughs> no, but the thing is like, you can like oftentimes things are not like just, uh, it's not only one thing that makes uh, uh, yes. one character uh it's always like more complex it's like multiple things so you know if you want to be uh, uh stronger it's probably not only enough to, to make one change where it's like oh i'm gonna make slightly more of uh, fibers yeah but if you want to make more fibers you need to have all the infrastructure behind that will be able to make everything so i think like Generating is interesting, very interesting in the in the context of. Uh, I mean, it's much easier to apply it for context where like you have diseases yeah. that involve like one mutation, and there are many many uh, diseases that involve only one mutation. Mm -hmm. And if you can correct that only mutation, then you can. It's good enough to actually correct uh, the disease. Mm. But if you have disease or um, Applications that involved multiple, like something that's more complex and that involves multiple different uh, components, that's going to be way harder to uh, to achieve. Yeah, that makes sense. So if if you have something where you know there's one mutation, you can target and and edit that mutation pretty easily. But if yeah. you make some other genetic change in the hope of uh, you know genetic engineering, it's more complex because it affects many parts of your body and your functioning not just there's not like one switch for each thing it's, yeah, it's like it's a chemical it's, formula right 
Yeah, you need like multiple parts to make it work at the end of the day. So and then, some, some then it'll affect somewhere else too, right? Yeah, but you can potentially, if you think about it, so you would know. So one of the big things that came up with genome editing, and I think that's like the safe way to go and the most ethical is actually to apply those on a what we call a post-mitotic human. So you don't want to apply that on uh, your cells uh, that will be transmitted to the next generation. So oh, yeah. as long as it's on a somatic, like your, your, your body, the rest of your body, if you want to change that, that's okay because it will die with you. Those changes will die with you. And you might want to avoid having those changes done like in uh, in your uh, cells that's like both sides, the eggs or uh, the sperm that could be transmitted to the next generation because on a spread, I mean, yeah, you don't I want did, you don't I, want this I, dumbass having uh, chimp strong children in random cities around the U.S. Is that the? We want to avoid. I, I think <laughs> at this point, like right, at this point right now, we want to avoid because uh, you don't we don't know what's the long term effect. Yeah, and it's better that things die like with with the individuals rather than like being being transmitted to the next generations forever. Yeah, we so don't want to accidentally change humanity into the future. Exactly, you don't want to. We don't, don't want to do permanent change to the humanity that would be even though actually there has been cases like uh like a couple of years like two, year, two years ago i think mm. in china where um uh, actually kids were uh born mm. two girls i think uh, they, uh i remember well so they did uh whoever like the person who um did those studies they actually uh changed actually the genome of those kids Mm. uh before uh i mean in the embryo and that's actually potentially going to those kids who are actually born mm -hmm. uh will potentially i mean should be able to you know uh transmit the, this change to the next generations that was like a huge uh um controversy of i, I think that person I, I don't know what what happened but i think like the chinese government probably put, put that person in jail um for a long time. So that was, that an, was an unauthorized? Was, no, that was not authorized. And, uh, and that's probably like completely prohibited. And I mean, it's prohibited at least here for sure. And yeah. like in most of the countries, and even completely unethical at this point. Yeah. Okay. So but, in general, in the gene scientist community, there's a, there's a good caution for not introducing permanent genetic changes that will move to future generations. Correct. That's good. That, that, yeah, that, that, that's the agreement that was. Uh, I mean, that's something that people are sticking to, and that's like the most ethical uh, thing to it, do right now. Is there? Um, I, I don't know the term for it, but I, I heard I've, I've read in some either news articles or whatever that there's a global kind of agreement on on that where uh, governments are not to allow certain scientists to do gene alterations, like you're saying. Um, and then I think at the time when I was reading that article, my friends were saying, well, freaking China, they're going to freaking do it. Even they're not going to listen to their government or will their government even care to listen to the, the global world that's agreeing to this? Um, do you have any I, just random thoughts on that? Is China no. an asshole? <laughs> no, but the, the thing is like, I think it's hard to come up with like, again, it's like a race, like mm. worldwide. And, you know, some countries might be less strict about some of those policies 
and yeah. allow those things to happen. But clearly, in this case, uh, like even China was it was a big no. What What was uh, the change in those uh, two girls? That so I think it's if I remember well, it's one gene that's involved in uh, HIV transmission. So it's, so I, I was saying uh, if I believe. Uh, it's it's a it's a gene that's on T cells okay. that allows uh, HIV to enter the the cell, and oh. if I remember well, uh, the I think the mother was HIV positive, and mm. the idea was to change the the genome of those kids so they would not be able to get HIV. Oh, whoa! So it's a they're attempting for a good change. It was good intentions. But the, it's the unknown future that's the scary part. Yeah, but so it's good intentions, always good intentions. Like, uh, <laughs> that's just how you like Terminator? A, that's how you become an evil mad scientist. <laughs> you know, like I, I like I, I love to say, like, I mean, it's like the, the, the road to hell. Is <laughs> yes. That's how like things, you know. Okay, so the dude but, was yeah, trying like to HIV proof, HIV proof these kids and like. Trying to give them built-in genetic protection against HIV. Yeah, I mean, and that's why actually, so that it's based on the fact that you know we know some people are actually resistant to HIV, and a lot of them are like naturally have those that mutation. Ah. And that's how we know that that's you know how the virus gets in, and like it's one of the ways of uh, of the virus you get in. So those people who actually have that mutation exist, but no one has made that mutation in a lab. Mm. And then let until that uh, guy have a kids uh, come come from that. Yeah. For for your uh, published paper, how long ago did the research start on that, and where was the meat? Uh, how long was the meat of it? Like the 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 really intensive time that you spent on it. I would say so. That particular research took a long, long time because it, it went back and forth uh, between you know di different reviewers trying to uh, different. Um, Mm. So, we try to get it in, in really high impact journals, uh, uh, like really um, like some that have like really high impact factors uh, journals, and um, so yeah, you don't want to get published to, in a journal that the brain scientists are not reading. I like yeah. Also, like you, you know, you tend to like try to you know shoot for the higher, uh, the most publicized uh, journals. Uh, so. It, so you yeah. can actually spread the word, uh, word easier, but also you get uh, more attention because uh, if you select in those journals, that means your, your research is very interesting. But, you know, it went back and forth, like between the editor and then uh, the lab for making the changes and like that. So it took a long, long time. So we ended up like changing the, um, not even uh, publishing words as first submitted. So the journal is, is a different one. So. That's, I think, the most painful part. Is getting published. Uh, yes. I think like that can take like a long, long time. And it's it takes literally like, yeah, I like, could do probably a year and a half <laughs> to go back and forth, or almost two years, actually. Of, uh, uh -huh. and it's a painful process. Plus, you had to work on mice for their two years of lifespan, right? Or shorter lifespans with brain cancer. Well, yeah, way shorter for brain cancer. But... But yeah. no, the thing is, like, you end up like having to. Uh, so you'll get like a set of reviewers 
asking you to do those uh, those experiments or like completely challenging the, or like your results and telling you no that you should do everything now but with this different mouse mm. and you're like okay it's been like two years of work yeah like three years of work like we're not going to do another three years because or like you know you can always like challenge or like this is not the right model for this yeah uh, and things like that. So it, it does take, uh, that's the most painful, uh, pain, pain, painful part is like, so you grew, you grew this beard while you were waiting for the peer review. <laughs> yeah. I see. <laughs> <laughs> so waiting on the peer review or getting published was like a, or a year and a half. And then how much, how much time was actual research? So the research like would take, uh, also like three years, two, two, two to three years, uh, for, for some, I mean, it can take like long. It, it really depends. The, that's the thing. It's just, it's probably like half of that time. So you still do research in a, in, a, in the meantime, like when you get uh, peer reviewed, mm. and then you just uh, try to anticipate uh, what you can do, uh, or what was going to be asked uh, from the reviewers. So Milos so, is, is already working on more future stuff. Yeah, what's the future stuff you're working on now? Oh, you can't tell us. His competitors are gonna. <laughs> oh yeah, gonna scoop his shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, scoop. Definitely, definitely exploring like different cancers. There's like many, uh, many other uh, interesting cancers to. Uh, I there's mean, lot, brain cancers. There's a lot of work in the cancer biz. Before. What? There's a lot of work available in the cancer business. Yeah, there is a lot. Yeah. Do you think uh, ten years ago, if if you you saw yourself? If the ten, the person ten years ago saw you now, do you think they would have anticipated what you're doing now? Um, maybe not as translational as uh, what I had. So ten years ago, I was doing things that were more uh, basic, uh, basic research, so mm -hmm. more fundamental, uh, trying to understand uh, how things work at the very basic level. Uh, now, what I do is very translational. And uh, Stephen Hawking. Say again? Stephen Hawkins? Or what's Wait, Hawking what? what's Hawking's work? You said you were trying to understand Hawking's work at the basic level? Oh no. Well oh, how things that? work. Oh okay. You said yeah, how, how things work, yes. Yes, okay. Yeah, I was mostly like trying to understand like the very basic biology of I see, yeah. uh the processes and like what naturally occurs mm -hmm. and uh and uh, you know testing those uh different things. But now it's very, very translational. So it's, you know, it's pretty much like problem solving. It's a very different approach. Uh, you know, basic biology is more like you have a question or a hypothesis and you test it and then you just like, you know, keep following, uh, unwinding that, uh, uh, that story and you don't know where you're going to end oftentimes, mm. but by engineering, uh, it's kind of a different approach where it's like, this is where I want to go. This is what, this is what I want to achieve, like in terms of like product yeah. and what are the tools that I have? So you, it's most more like, a, you know, a, a problem solving thing rather than like uh, uh, basic biology where it's basic, it's just like asking questions and trying to understand the processes and it can bring you like in another direction or like completely uh, different from where you started. But that's also, it's just a different uh, way of understanding. Do you think people in your shoes, the majority of them start out thinking they want to cure cancer or they have a path that they're looking to go and, and, and do that research? Or did you end up where you are kind of 
through the path of life uh, or did you have that vision to to go that whole way i mean i had an interest oh, i mean strong interest in usually in, in those questions so i thought it was just uh great uh i found like a good fit in terms of um, lab mm. and like topic i think a lot of people you know some people have like clear vision of like what they want to work on but you know, you, you never know exactly what you are going to work on. I mean, it's just like maybe a big picture of I'm interested in this, but then when you think about it, there's like so many different tools uh, in that toolbox that you can use or develop. It's like, like you, 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 it's very hard to know what you're gonna work exactly on. Mm. You, you can only take whatever opportunities present themselves, right? Yeah, but you can also make them happen and uh, that's, you know, if you think about, oh, I know, for example, like this uh, lab is working on, has this really cool tool, but, you know, I'm interested in using that tool for applying for that, for that other disease. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, you make it happen. And I think that's great. Oh, yeah. A, a, a lot of things like that. So that was like one of my interests was like applying some of using those tools to apply it for brain uh, disorders, uh, just like in general, brain diseases, not only restricted to cancer, but anything that has to do with the brain. So we have like, that lab has like the lab I'm in uh, at UCSF in Wonderlin's lab. Mm -hmm. So we have like great tools about for, uh, you know, achieving those, uh, uh, those goals. So, so you gravitated towards this. Yeah. I, I like that answer because I guess I want to feel um, slightly, what's the word I'm looking for, more human in the sense of when I look at certain scientists or certain people that accomplish some big projects or businesses, I feel, I, I kind of think that they have their life together and they know the path that they want to go and they get there. But then so many times, especially having these interviews, I see how people uh, don't have that path in mind and get there a little bit by luck. A, a lot of hard work, but um, that's just, I guess, the way at my perspective, your answer, like it's, it's, it's interesting where I started out for me, I started out with a computer networks degree, but I'm in programming. If I go back, if I could go back in time, I wish I would have taken a computer science degree or a, or a programming degree instead of a computer networks, even though that's, they're kind of a similar ballpark because it is computers. But I, in the beginning of my career, it was a little bit harder to get certain jobs when they said, why do you have a computer networks degree, but you're looking for a computer a software engineering job. So um, I think it's interesting to hear from your level as someone that's, you got a PhD, you've done a, you published a paper now, but your path wasn't exactly clear even 10 years ago. So that, I think that's a really, I, I like that message a lot. No, I'm going to, I'm going to credit you for wanting to cure brain cancer. <laughs> I'm proud, well, to, I'm proud to know a guy <laughs> that is out there trying to cure brain cancer. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll see how things go uh, in the future. But I think that would be, yeah, that's pretty exciting. And this is one of the, as I said, like translational research is somewhat like to me, like very exciting uh, just because you can see the output and uh, the, you know, the translation, like how, how things could work in the clinic. Mm-hmm. So you're very, very close to the, to that. And that's like very, uh, exciting do you happen to have any regrets or or th- looking back on the research now what you would have done differently in which w- w- what part uh just uh the the path to get to the answers that you wanted 
do you for do you see now that there could have been shortcuts oh well but that's like you know that's part of the science yeah like yeah, you, yeah yeah you do like probably 90 95 percent of what you're gonna do is going to fail uh, and that's what allows you to uh uh to you know make those make it work at the end of the day so you, so, wish, you wish you had engineered the exact correct thing <laughs> on the first shot <laughs> yeah no, I, I, know, <laughs> I know my question is kind of silly but i i i I know as a programmer, I built certain things and I know after seeing the final product, I'm like, damn it, I could have done that. But is, I mean, just, it's sto- I think it's stories. Uh, um, I'm trying to just, there's any, there's stories that, that to, when you go through that, there's usually stories. So that's kind of what I'm asking about. No, exactly. I mean, like if you take, let's say the end product here, the paper, the way it is, I'm sure within a year or like less than a year, you could recap or like maybe a couple of months you could do everything that's in there mm. it, but it's just like you know the process is exploratory process and you never know how things are gonna unwind so like so that's why it takes well longer than expected i mean well longer than like the final product is so i was like yeah it's, I, I, I always find it like not funny but kind of this when you read those papers and you're like wow like you know, I can, I can do everything right now. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> but you know, but it did took, it did take like five years to get to that point. Yeah. It's easy if somebody gives you the recipe and answer book. I mean, it, it, that's the thing is like, if I, if I, if I give you a puzzle yeah. and I give you the answer, well, well it's easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, if I ask you to solve the puzzle, it might, it'll take you a long time, but then you solve it, then you know, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I know how to, uh, yeah. Just solve it. Well, so, five minutes, two so, seconds. so gene bioengineering is just like Sudoku. If, if you turn to the back and you have the answers, yeah, then it's easy. <laughs> what were some of the challenging uh, times or uh, events during this research for you? I mean, it's uh, the, it's very short lunch the, breaks. The challenge is <laughs> probably like, like just, hot pockets. Um, <laughs> Wearing lab coats, <laughs> well, get I mean, just spilling like a coffee on the lab coat. <laughs> well, no coffee. <laughs> no coffee in the lab. It's not oh, lab. okay, okay. No food, no yeah. drinks, nothing in the lab. Is it uh, like clean roomish? Like where, uh, like, like when they build? Yes, I mean you. You wear a coat. You wear. Yeah, you don't want to accidentally yeah. uh, give give the mice some uh, monster energy drink. <laughs> and have them all jacked up on Powerade. <laughs> no, no, we don't. Yeah, we uh, uh, you, you know, like you're not supposed to have any uh, food or drinks in the lab, or you know, just, just by safety, and you don't want. Yeah, just we avoid all of that. Not allowed. Gotcha. Um, any, so any, I think jumping back to the question was, uh, any, what challenges did you encounter during this research? I think it's, uh, it's just like work-wise, it's like a, a big load of work and, um, it, it, it's, it's a lot of like, you know, weekends on a, on late nights, things like that. You just like, you know, get, get things done. Yeah, it's mouse, like mouse cancer doesn't rest on Saturdays. No, we don't. <laughs> yeah, it, um, like yeah, science is just like very intense in that sense because, especially if you have a project or something that you want to 
get done, it only relies on you, right? Mm. So if you don't move forward, nothing's going to move forward. And a lot of this, the entire project that you're building is what's going to be your, uh, your groundwork for going to the next level. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get it done, uh, you're not you're not going anywhere with your career and things like that. So uh, I have a, a question from early on. You mentioned uh, something about your body rejecting foreign. Uh, so what what I think of is uh, like if you if you get a kidney replaced, if you know if you stick another kidney in there, if it's not the right blood type or it doesn't match, your body will reject that kidney, right? Uh, so that's a natural yeah. reaction. Uh, but yeah. my, my thought was in the in the caveman days, you're not you're not going to wake up with an accidental organ. So what is what is the actual thing that your body is most likely defending it? So in a caveman context, what would your body reject as a foreign object? I mean, all so when I meant foreign object, I meant like just in general uh, intruders like viruses, bacteria. Uh, fungi or any any infections that you can have uh. so your body that's how your body uh your immune system works is it educates itself recognizing things that are self yeah that's yourself and anything else that's on yourself is an intruder and needs to be killed okay and that works great for uh if you think about like attacking viruses or cleaning up uh infected cells from, uh, from viruses also like bacteria and and things like that, the opposite is autoimmunity. Mm. If you think about autoimmunity, it's when your body now starts attacking yourself. Yeah. Because it's not recognizing, it's not capable anymore to make a difference that's actually, that's still you, just like start attacking uh, yourself. And that's like a big... um, uh, It's a problem. A big big issue for like... uh, your immune system when, when it starts actually uh, not being able to know that it's itself. Yeah. So then your body is freaking out over things that it shouldn't be. It's, it's reacting yeah. and defending against things that are natural and should be there. Yeah. I mean, like, for example, like, like if you think about brain autoimmunity, I mean, like multiple sclerosis and things like that, it's, it's those are like diseases where, or like type 1 diabetes where, it's actually your immune system that attacking organs mm-hmm. from yourself while it shouldn't. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. <clears throat> Did you happen to have a champagne moment when the pub when your paper was fully published? Uh well we had like uh my wife and I went for for dinner for uh celebration on Friday night. So that was a nice uh nice. celebratory moment. But it, it like I have to say like there's like so many stages of the in the process where like you know, you get the uh, uh, acceptance like way months uh, way before, but then you still have like some proofs to, to do in the meantime and things like mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, I just like I think it just dilute, at the end of the day it kind of dilutes out a little bit uh, the celebration. It's not like just like one moment for like oh yeah everything like came together, but yeah, it just uh, it's great. It's just oh yeah i bet you celebrate every single step it's fine <laughs> yeah yeah you knew it was coming <laughs> actually, every other day. actually yeah the, was there a moment where you knew you knew it was there meaning was there a moment um uh, where you tested the a rat a, a mouse and then you actually were able to kill that brain cancer and then maybe the second time it didn't work 
and then the third and fourth time did. But was there a moment for you? Do you remember that moment where you're like, you think you have the answer? This is the golden moment. <laughs> this <for> shit you. works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, I mean, you have this. Uh, I mean, luckily yes. things like worked, which is like great because like you, when you repeat things, that's you know the 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 core of like science is you know it's only one time you should work. You should work. 99.9% of the times. Yeah, every time. 95% of the times, like what you think is like uh, good enough. So reproducibility is key, right? Mm. Like you don't want like to uh, publish something that's, you know, only you can make it work and nobody else can make it work. So that, 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 that's, that's not magic. the point of science. Or like I do it here, but someone does it like on the other side of the world and it doesn't work there. It's like so there's something wrong here. Uh, but no, like things were like were, went pretty smooth, and the hypothesis was uh, was right. So that's uh, that was like pretty exciting to see, uh, like you know, happening over and over again. Mm -hmm. How did that hypothesis kind of uh, evolve with you? As in, were you already pretty deep into brain cancer research to come up with the hypothesis that you could build a sniper gun, or how how is that? How did that work? So for me, like the way I address this, so what, what I'm interested in is just like building general tools uh, for uh, brain-specific disorders. And uh, and I've, at that point, like when I had some great tools that were working mm -hmm. that I felt like would be very uh, useful, I decided to use that uh, on the cancer model because I thought the cancer model would be a great uh, application for those tools. And that's how I uh, end up like testing in a cancer, like in a brain cancer model. Well, so you're building a tool first and then you figured out that tool was good for killing brain cancer. So it was like one of the easiest way of demonstrating that the tool, that the, the tool is actually working. Oh, in so terms of approach. is it almost, uh, maybe this is a bad analogy or uh, totally correct me if I'm wrong. So is it like CRISPR itself is as a, technology or tool so you're building like sort of a different type of crispr and but this no he's, he's using a different editing it, it, tool it is uh that can identify it's in the brain so we so basically like, like we're lost <laughs> <laughs> no so the thing is like you can, you can think about like oh if you come up with like a hammer you know you build a tool, right? But like, yeah. you need to find like, what you're going to make it use for. Yeah. And, and how do you tell that that's actually the hammer works? You need to, you know, think about applications, like in which context you want it to, uh, I mean, to test it. And by many ways, so let's say like w w what I'm doing and like all of other my projects are involved, are involving is just like, I'm just building tools that I can instruct cells when they get in the brain to do a specific task. And one of them, which I thought would be an easy way to actually demonstrate that my cells are capable of being instructed to the task specifically in the brain is by having them kill a cancer. Mm. And that's like a, an easier application of, of the technology that I built compared to other diseases that you could think about that are also in the brain that are more complex and harder to actually uh, 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 apply for at this point. So we, I'm still like um, improving those tools 
so I can do other things uh, later, other diseases. So is the analogy kind of correct as saying like CRISPR is like a Phillips head screwdriver and yours is a flathead screwdriver? Is that the tool? It's that a different type. Yeah, it's like they have all like tools, but like why are you going to use them for uh, is, a, is an application and yeah. you that demonstrates that that tool is actually working or is useful for. So you're going to, is your future research all going to be potentially just figuring out what this Phillips head screwdriver that you built is like capable of doing? Like meaning, are you going to target, um, uh, I don't know, some other cancer that's in usually the heart and whatnot, heart or lung? That's one of the possibilities. Yeah, that, that's like definitely because, I mean, the thing is like, this is like a huge field of like applications and a lot of like, so the core principles are now set mm. that, that, that idea that now you can like uh, use this for recognizing an, an environment such as an organ and doing a specific task. But yeah, like now, like you can think how you can use that modular uh, approach for many, many different applications. Well, and that's, yeah, that, uh, in the future, that's definitely something like I'm interested in as an independent investigator to do that in my own lab and uh, dude if you can if you can cure uh lung cancer we can all start smoking cigarettes again <laughs> and, and then we can be cooler <laughs> milos is not having that. Not that. <laughs> i don't think you should think about it like as a, a lot for doing uh things no, that you know are not good for you i'm saying people want to smoke if you can cure lung cancer you could probably charge them at least a couple hundred bucks per lung uh, it's, more, it's more expensive than that. <laughs> is that a uh, Nikola Tesla on your mug? It is. Uh huh. So, what is a gene editing biologist uh, doing with a electrical dude on his mug? Oh, he's so he's uh, of Serbian descent. Ah. I mean, like I'm Serbian too. So my parents are uh, Serbian. So. Gotcha. So he's, uh, he's, like a he's home. very famous. He's a very famous hometown hero. Uh, what? Hometown hero. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So that's uh, that's why uh, I have. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think he's a very interesting uh, character who was. Uh, yeah. Like very uh, interesting ideas, and who did not get uh, popularity he should have got back then mm. or like he got he, he, like history forgot about him for a little while and yeah also like shows you that's like you can do great science but it's not only about science there's like a lot of other things that are involved it's like yeah. egos other egos and uh business yeah it's kind of very interesting business yeah business is a big part of it yeah we don't we don't so have like any history. uh famous vietnamese scientists do we mm, not that i know of yeah, I'm half Irish. I don't even know if there's any famous Irish. Oh, there are many. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna go look them up now. <laughs> I gotta find one Vietnamese scientist and one Irish. <laughs> I know there was one uh, Vietnamese uh, NFL football player, mm. <laughs> but it was, it was probably a while ago now. I think it was Dat Wing, if I remember the name correctly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> are you? I mean, like, yeah, we have a lot of basketball players in the NBA. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot. Uh, is your is your last? Are you Greek? Is your last name Greek? No, I, no. 
Ser- it's oh, Serbian. It's just, oh, Serbian. Okay. Is, is Milos a common Serbian uh, uh, name? Yes, it's, very, it's actually very common. It's actually it's pronounced Milos. Milos. Oh. Oh. Okay, so we had a we had a party at our house last night, <laughs> and and like, what do you what do you guys got to do tomorrow? Like, we got to get up early, and uh, we're gonna interview. We're gonna have a conversation with Milos, and uh, like, oh, Milos, he's Greek, right? I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe. I'm like, well, that's a Greek name. I'm like, well, yeah, okay, but I, I'm just saying, I don't know if the guy's Greek or not. And like, for it was probably a good 15 minutes, people were trying to convince us that you were Greek. <laughs> Based on your name, and I was getting a hard time. People are like, "You're interviewing someone tomorrow, and you don't even know what what uh, nationality or background he is." I'm like, "I'm just asking him about his career, not his, not about his parents, his genetic no, regional yeah. heritage." No, I mean, like, there's an island called Milos in Greece. Yeah, but uh, that's uh, yeah, but not Milos. Milos. No, I mean, no. Well, I mean, on top of that, I'm I'm French. You know, I was born and raised in France, so it's not like mm. it makes it even more co- more complex story. So that means we have to get you a Thomas Piketty mug, also. He's like the most famous economist right now. Economists love Thomas Piketty. <laughs> okay, I'm probably saying it wrong because I'm not French. <laughs> uh, when how? Oh, Thomas Piketty. Yeah. Yeah, super famous. Uh, you were born in France. How? What age were you when you came to the U.S.? Oh, did we cut out? How? So the first time oh, I okay. came in the U.S. was 20, 2010. So I was uh, twenty three. Oh, so okay. we we met you pretty much when you were first in the U.S. Then. Yeah, like uh, yeah, pretty much. It was like three, like I was three years in. Yeah, fresh off the boat. Yeah, hopefully we were. Uh, I was a good a uh, ambassador of American <laughs> lifestyle <laughs> and personality. <laughs> hopefully, I wasn't uh, a jerk. <laughs> yeah, that's why I left. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! Sorry. <laughs> what? What? Um. How did do you did you come to America on like a, a research visa, student visa, work visa? Yeah, it was like a research, it's a for a research visa, like as a visitor exchange uh, mm. program. Oh, that's, and if, if I remember correctly, back then, um, you were, I think you were uh, video calling with your, your girlfriend then or wife? I was like, yeah, that was like my ex. Yeah. Like a, oh, uh, okay. Oh, sorry. I don't want to bring up the old, old stuff. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that no, chick no, with the like, giant knockers? <laughs> 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 With, We're getting him in trouble right now. <laughs> with the yeah, uh, like those long distance relationships. <laughs> so tough, tell, yeah. tell me about the research Art. visa and the path. Um, so I'm on um, for my wife. She she has the K K K one visa, which is a fiance visa, and uh, a lot of um, online people on Reddit. There's like an immigration thread, and they talk about the steps of getting your paperwork for immigration and whatnot. And then some people. Uh, we'll say they're trying to go on a work visa or a research visa. And then other people that don't even have any of that, they'll come in and say, hey, what's the easiest way to get to America? And then uh, other people ask the routes for each one. So in your case, for the research visa, how how was that and what, what was involved? So, I mean, like that's, uh, you need to find a sponsor that's like always in the same uh, story. Uh, we have... I mean, the good thing is like for research, uh, I think there's like no limitations as of um, 
how many visa can be uh, issued compared to uh, private institutions where like basically, mm. I mean like companies were like, I think like this for H1Bs, I guess like there's like, a, you know, X number of H1Bs that are a lot per year. So that's like a, a really hard thing. But no, for like research, I think it's like, that's a, one of the great things is, is pretty like, it's not easy. It's just like, um, I would say probably less complicated. Mm. And, uh, and it's like a great opportunity to like learn, uh, go study. I mean, not study abroad, but you know, do science abroad and uh, explore did, uh, being big labs, uh, famous labs and things like that. Did you have your PhD prior to that? Prior to getting- No, no, not at that time. What, uh, what degree did you have at that time? I was like a master uh, level. So you basically, that was, that was probably the program where, where they ask us to, uh, you know, you can go abroad and like study, I mean, not study, but like, you know, do an internship of a couple of months in a, in a lab. So you can get experience uh, of what, you know, research is hands-on. And uh, we usually don't have any restrictions uh, for where you can actually go, uh, as long as, you know, you are uh, the subject is interesting enough and you can uh afford to go wherever you uh you want to go so if the, the u.s like is the trying to cure brain cancer we can bring over as many europeans as we like yeah there's like a lot of uh well that's the thing is like i think the u.s is a great place for opportunities like that and you can like you know get talents from uh uh from the entire world yeah uh, and you know give them a chance to uh Contribute to the research, yeah. Yeah, I think that's like a, a great, uh, great way of thinking about it. From your perspective on that, is there if someone were to think, uh, why didn't you do that in France? Is it is it the opportunities that the the research facilities, the the culture here in America? I think like initially I was very interested in like you know coming going like in an English speaking country or like the U.S. Uh, just because as an experience, but also. A lot of the of, of the you know high high impact uh, research is done like in the U.S. A lot of it's like the U.S. is definitely one of the major hub for like science in general, and Europe has like couple of uh, couple of good places, but it's not as it's not the same as the U.S. Mm. So in terms of like funding and um, how much uh, there is, it's way way better than what you have in, in Europe France has like I think like over the last couple of years uh in, you know res, uh, investment in research has declined or like stagnated while like you know mm. the inflation kept going up so at the end of the day like it didn't really uh improve much and and I think it's you know it's if you feel, like I remember the um, so Emmanuel Charpentier so she uh her and uh, Jennifer Doudna, they co-shared the Nobel Prize for CRISPR-Cas9 discovery, mm. like last year. Uh, and I remember like Emmanuel Charpentier saying uh, uh, that she had to leave France because she could not do the research she wanted because mm. France will not fund her research. Mm. And so she ended up going uh, in other places in, in Europe or mm. like in, in the world. Yeah. Just because she could not do the research she wanted, nobody wanted to fund someone to study uh, weird things about how bacteria defend themselves. Nobody mm -hmm. was interested, like you know. And that's oftentimes like 
I think, a big mistakes from uh, from a lot of like maybe governments or like people who don't understand science because science is just like you cannot request i mean science like takes forever like when i say forever it's not it's like it it takes years. a lot it's like so years but also like decades probably before you see something come out yeah and and you you don't necessarily need to look for something to come out because science is about understanding the unknown and you know Emilia Charpentier and Jeffrey Dunn have been studying uh, how bacteria defend themselves against viruses, which is something like you can think about like, okay, but why is that important to any of us here? Right. Like, I mean, just when you start with that, like, it's true. Like, how could, how could you expect that yeah, this actually I led to the discovery of CRISPR-Cas9, who actually allows you now to do genome editing and change, like, it, it literally changed the face of the, like, how science is it, it's like definitely a revolution in uh, yeah, revolutionary research yeah. biology so no one would have expected such a thing same as uh all the number prizes who got who, who were studying jellyfish and how jellyfish you know uh has those different uh, uh fluorescent proteins uh-huh. and actually that discovery made a huge uh impact in research because a lot uh, researchers should not tag proteins with like different colors and see now in the cell where those proteins are. So, okay. it, you know, a lot of like groundbreakings are not coming from the engineering part, they're coming uh, about the basic biology. That's where you make the biggest discoveries and then you can use that for uh, other applications. But at the end of the day, if you don't have those, because you, you can take like, so nature has taken billions of years, I mean, not billions, but like uh, mil- uh, hundreds of millions of years to come up with a solution, mm. or like things evolved, got better and things like that. It's hard to compete with nature in the lab over like five years and create something like, yeah. oh, I want you to invent something different. So there's a lot of like things that we can take from nature that, you know, have been perfected or like improved over the last millions of years that you will never be able to like come out, out of the blue and, and, and make in the lab. Yeah. Cause bacteria have been around for so long. And yeah. We've been there for the beginning of times. Yeah. So you would, you wouldn't, you know, looking at the research at the beginning, you wouldn't say, well, why do I care about how bacteria defend themselves? We're not trying to help bacteria. That would be the logical oh, view. On oh, that. but you can do the other way. So the way you can spin it always is, Oh, okay. Let's learn how they defend themselves so we can attack them better. Yeah. Let's find weaknesses because, oh. you know, that's, that's actually how probably they sold. So whenever you write a grant, you always like cannot be constrained by like, mm. you cannot just say like, oh, I'm interested in understanding how things work just for the sake of understanding it, which is yeah. actually like how things should be. Right. But you always like, if you want to get money, <laughs> you, need to, you need to tell like why it's important. Ah. And, uh, and I think like probably a way of selling that project was probably initially by, you know, saying like, by understanding how they defend themselves. Now we can find the Achilles, um, how do you call like, uh, what's an English word? Like, you know, those like, uh, weak points uh, of yeah. like the defense. So now you can maybe yeah. take advantage of that to kill them better now. Right. Cause in general, we don't want too much bacteria. 
No, you won't have white ads, especially in the <laughs> hospital. Oh yeah, that's mm. terrible. If you could kill all the bacteria in hospitals, that would save save a lot of lives. Where do you just? Uh, but uh, they, they they evolve to actually survive. Yeah. So that's why, like, we actually that's one of I think a big issue for the future is a lot of our antibiotics are like you know slowly not working uh, anymore. Yeah. We have we there are a couple of strains now that are appearing that are actually. Uh, resistant to multiple of the classic antibiotics. Mm, so we need new ways to kill bacteria. Yeah. And antibiotics are like not something that people are big pharma, pharma companies are interested in developing anymore. Mm. So costs a lot of money. It's, you know. What's your thoughts on, or if you, if you haven't thought of it, what's your theory on how the research visas in America can imp- impact America's future? Like if America's having all this research and they're able to fund it all, is America the one that's going to benefit directly or do some of these published papers actually get spread out worldwide? So it's not a direct benefit for America per se. I think like the way, uh, so you can think about like uh, two things. Like one is the patent. So a lot of like the the work that's actually in that paper is patented now. Is it patented by your, the the university or by your team or how does that work out? So it's usually the university who initiates. I mean, you request it, and then the, there's mm-hmm. a patent office that takes care of those things, and you get it patented at the end of the day. So that's what that how that's how you have the IP, and all of this for potential commercialization at the end of the day. And uh, that's why it was a big fight actually between UC Berkeley and. Uh, um, uh, on the MIT over the CRISPR-Cas9 patents, ah. who discovered it first. But that's a different thing. It's like, so you, the universities have those. Uh, Wait, so who got the credit for that? Property. Who got, the credit, who got the credit for CRISPR? I end up like being MIT. Ah, okay. Interesting. So, the yeah, I just like like you know the different rules. Like, who who's the first one who? Uh, by the end of the day, you see like the ones who were credited for the discovery were not MIT, were actually uh, Jennifer Doudna at UC Berkeley and Emmanuel Charpentier. Ah, so Berkeley should have got it. Well, I mean, the, there's a law and like <laughs> um, there was like a, a, a judgment and they had like, a, you know, I think yeah. like a lot had to do with, and this is where like, I think like, I think a lot of universities are not uh, capitalizing necessarily very well on discoveries. Yeah. And I think like one of the things where, you know, who's the first one who files the patent is what counts. Yeah. So if you, you know, you can expedite the filing of the patents by adding extra money and that, you know, makes it faster, mm. but you know, whoever does that gets the the credit. So I, I think that was the, the ruling at the end of the day. Um, yeah. And that, and then the law changed since then. I mean, I, I, like I read a little bit of it. I'm not very familiar with all the details, but I think it's very interesting. So you have like so that's one thing how like you can monetize the discovery funded by the U.S. money and within the U.S. The other way you can like think about it is you also have uh, the knowledge that's now in the U.S. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, knowledge is like huge. It's like knowing all these techniques. And yeah, at the, at the very least, Milos, the like, expert, is here mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Yeah, totally. 
So, so in in general, because it's like, no, go ahead. No, I mean it's just like it's a it's one way of actually holding or like you know benefiting. So being at the cutting edge makes you see the next step before the rest of the world. Uh, yeah. So whenever like something comes out, it always comes out like two years after the original discovery, right? Like mm. the papers. So like we moved on from that part like already long ago and we're already like in something different right now, like preparing like the next step, but the world already sees that now. So we already always have like a couple of years. Head start, of, uh, yeah. Advance. I have such a pessimistic view on like maybe either the future of America or the, some of the things that the government does wrong here in America. Um, so to, to, to hear this, uh, that so much funding is going into research and getting these visas, that's actually, that sounds like probably a fantastic thing, a smart thing, I think, um, that America's doing. So it's great to hear this. Yeah. No, that's like, I mean, I think like that's a great way of, I mean, you can think about like different ways of uh, recruiting talents and uh, people who are knowledgeable of something and, uh, you know, making things easier for sharing people and like getting people move from uh, a country from another, just, you know, mm-hmm. sharing their experience or like, you know, adding their little brick to the, to the big uh, picture is always like, uh, I mean, yeah, we're working in software engineering. I think I, I see certain parallels in it. Um, when I, if I get a chance to tell uh, upper management or the owner of a company to say, Hey, we should probably try to, get four hours a week of our development team to allow them to work on whatever they want. Anything, they don't, it doesn't have to be related on the software at work. They can work on any software, anything, even hardware. Um, the reason why I say this is because at previous places where I've worked, um, we were able to squeeze out free time as programmers. We didn't tell the manager that we were doing it, <laughs> but Nine, almost 95% of every project that we did on our free time ended up saving hours and hours. We're building tools on our free time at work. Well, free, um, how would you say it? Time from the company, but they didn't. Stolen time. Stolen time. <laughs> but 95% of those projects were built or ended up saving way more time once we implemented it in production. And so I actually go as far as to try to tell a company, if you can allocate eight hours a week, if, if they approve my four hours a week, then my next step is to get eight hours a week to say, allow the programming team eight hours a week to do whatever they want. And you will see, you will see um, uh, benefits from this development time. But it's, it's hard to pitch that because they're saying we're losing four hours a week. We're losing eight hours a week times four developers, eight developers, 12 developers. It's, yeah, it's a hard We're pitch. paying you to work. We're not paying you to play video games. Yeah, yeah. And some of these, I mean, we're prototyping new tools that it, it's, it's pretty amazing when, when we build a prototype tool and we actually say to the manager, hey, we built this. You want to implement? And every single time they're like, whoa, how many hours is that going to save us for the future? Every week we're going to save that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, implement that now. But it's so hard on, on the beginning side to say, hey, can we get four hours a week? Can we get eight hours a week? Usually it, it's a hard battle. So anyways, the, uh, I think of America putting the money in research is in, in that way, that, that same analogy. It is a long-term investment. It's not, it's something that's, I mean, 
it's a long, I mean, it's not just a long-term investment because you can see like how this can benefit, but it is, you know, something to think in a bigger context and, uh, and it's worth like putting that money because you're investing in the future. Exactly. And you're putting, it's setting yourself for success as a country. And uh, yeah, it is very important to, uh, it's not because you don't see like the product like right away, that means like there's not, not, not such a thing. It's like a lot of things going in the background and improvements that are being made and uh, advances that, you know, will make the country better. I, I mean, yeah, totally. I, I, th- I think with yours, at least uh, doing gene editing, brain cancer related stuff, that seems like you could see the you could see the light at the end of the, the end of the tunnel, what it, it's going to help on, on my, when I'm pitching. <laughs> let me have four or eight hours. I, ha- I have no I have nothing to tell the management like, hey, I, we're going to build this. I'm just telling them, can we have eight hours and we might build something. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's a, a tough pitch. But Oh, so you got to get better at selling your research. <laughs> and what, writing a, a um, proposal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Is there uh, any any topics we want to talk about? We probably got about a, a little bit over a half hour before I jump into the final questions. I just have like five or six questions that I ask at the end. Um, do you have any questions for us? Any anything or any questions? anything you want to talk about? Maybe like how what what did you guys learn from the like the bar experience that you tried to open in uh, in San Diego? Ah. Um, for me, uh, I think to me the most interesting, but uh, it's not a it's not a positive story, I guess per se. Uh, um, prior to opening the the cafe, Emma and I interviewed or asked a lot of business owners. Um, I think there's coffee shop owners, hair salon owners, Thai restaurant owners, um, asked their advice. Like, can you give us advice on how to open up a rest of a cafe? What, what advice do you have, uh, to minimize costs? What advice do you have to control, uh, control or, uh, deal with employees? What advice do you have for dealing with taxes, accounting? What advice do you have? And my conclusion out of all talking, doing all that, was holy shit none of these people know what they're fucking doing <laughs> it was it was mind-blowing to me some of these companies like uh some of the restaurants was like a half a million dollar restaurant like the amount of money that they put in i'm just shaking my head like you spent four years on this you spent half a million dollars and you don't have any decent advice like what the fuck like so and the answer is I, I, what I learned from that is people are more lucky than good. That that's what I I learned out of that. <laughs> yeah, we we tried to make a uh, a coffee shop down in San Diego years ago, and uh, it turned out people wanted lunch more than coffee in that location. So we we kind of converted to you know lunch and sandwiches and stuff. But uh, to to play off what Lim's saying is uh, we tried to research our way into you know, how do we make the best business? How do we set ourselves up for success? And, uh, in, in the restaurant business, in, in the coffee shop and restaurant business, it's, it's a lot of hit and miss. And, and a lot of them miss, you know, there's a lot more misses than hits. They just, they disappear and then you don't see them. Uh, so it's, it's frustrating to go to the successes and say, you know, what can we learn from you? And then there's not a lot to learn. So, I mean, over the years now, maybe it's fair to say that 
a lot of restaurants and a lot of those small businesses are people with a lot of money kind of doing a hobby more than a business. Um, cause if you have a big budget, then you can, you can buy your way through a lot of challenges, right? Yeah. Um, so, the, I mean, we, we see some restaurants that are like, there's, how can you possibly be making enough money? Like this doesn't add up as a business. This is a beautiful, awesome restaurant, but you know, it just doesn't, you're 12 bucks for this plate ain't going to cover all this. Right. <laughs> so yeah. sometimes you see that and for a, a huge compliment to Emmett on his dealing with the finances and planning out the business and his business plan actually was really good. Whereas I feel like, uh, any other business plan that I've ever seen, there's gaping holes in the, the financial planning, the planning on, on the details where he had it down to the price of one single cup. That's how detailed the, 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 the business plan was where he's looking at, okay, if I got to buy uh, 500 cups at $1 each, it's going to change for his accounting background, $1.50 a cup and a dollar is big change. But in most companies where they are most owners that have half a million dollars, they don't think about that 50 cents. Um, but also when you're talking about that 50 cent difference, it's also the big things that Emmett was looking at. Uh, when you go rent a, 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 um, a business, um, retail space, a retail space, you're looking at, is it $2,000 a month? I mean, back then was probably 1500 to 2000 a month. It's probably gone up to 3000, but you're looking at things where, okay, this other spot, it's 4,000. What does it offer? This spot has $3,000 a month. What does it offer? Where can we carve big expenses? And Emmett did an amazing job of looking at that stuff. Like if you, if you're able to, um, find a spot that has a pre-built kitchen and you know, you're going to be using a kitchen kitchen that could shave, uh, $50,000, um, off the opening costs if you out. Yeah. Yeah. If you, yeah. So things like that, Emmett, I mean, he brought, you're looking at what some people spend $250,000 to open and he brought it down. I think it was some, I forget if it was 17,000. It was some ridiculous. We definitely. We're trying to operate on a shoestring budget. Um, you know, just cause we weren't rich. So we we're trying to do it, uh, in a very efficient way. And that was the driver of all that activity was, you know, yeah, it's expensive to open, a business in the U.S., especially a food business, because there's a lot of regulation, a lot of health department stuff, and we try to do everything by the rules. And um, if you do everything right and do all your planning, you still have to get lucky to make it. Uh, and in the end, we, we ran into some bad luck that that it wasn't yeah. worth fighting through. Yeah, I mean, I do remember like you were. I was like the access to the bathroom could not go through the kitchen. Yeah, um, yeah. Area, <laughs> Yeah, there was like competing regulatory bodies that we had to follow rules from OSHA, the health department, the city. And so if you take this maze of regulations and you go, okay, then the only solution is this, but it doesn't work for this department or, or whatever. And, you know, another issue we had was um, there's the health department and then there's the food establishment waste division, which regulates what goes down your drain. So uh, kind of like a sewer department. And so they're like, yeah, you can't put all these coffee grounds down the drain. I go, well, what if I dump them in the trash first and then wash the coffee stuff? Like, yeah, that's fine. And the health department comes over and goes, oh, you can't wash all these coffee grounds down the drain. I'm like, well, yeah, but the, the food establishment wastewater division said I could just dump them in this trash can here. And in the end, it, it was like, well, then you need a grease trap. Like, well, grease trap, you told me I can't cook here and I don't have anything that 
fries with grease. Why are you making me put in a grease trap? Like it's a regulation. And, and it, it was this huge back and forth of trying to follow all the rules and it just became impossible. So in the end, the, the health department of San Diego, I will vilify and I will, I will forever blame them for uh, trying to require us to put in a $10,000 grease trap. Like, it's like, hey, go bust up the concrete in the back and install this in the sewage line. And like, well, I mean, if you really want us to have a grease trap, like there's a $500 grease trap that we can put right under our sink. Because if everything is getting washed at the sink, it can catch it right out of the sink. Why can't I do that? And it's just this insane bureaucracy that I think they've really lost uh, sight of. You know, the goal should be to make food establishments safe for the public. But I think they've lost sight of the goal. It's just become this weird, r- oppressive regulatory body that's out to just, kind of, I don't know, just, it's like just smash small business. Like at the very least, you should be supportive, you know, not, not oppressive. So it's a very weird, weird thing to experience that from that, from that perspective. Yeah. You would imagine like, like you would have a more cohesive, um, you know, set of rules that kind of inc- like merge all of the different departments yeah make it easy for like any newcomer i mean you don't need to like yeah because it sounds like you all pretty much need like to i mean have like a phd in like all of this to be able to like yeah you know like all the different things to make it successful because it's yeah yeah it was it was a squeeze from many different directions um, for example, uh, when you open, there's like an opening inspection and, uh, the health department charges you, I think it's something like two grand to come do the opening inspection. It's like, well, you're requiring me to do this and now I got to pay you to do this. I got to pay you to come give me a hard time. Okay. I'll follow that rule. But if you, uh, paid like an extra thousand, they'll come out the week before and do a pre-inspection and tell you what's going to come up on the inspection. I'm like, okay, you know, I'll make that investment. Let's, let's pay to have them come out first. And then I can knock out any things they might give me a hard time for. So they gave me a list. We, we fixed and corrected and upgraded to their specs. And then they come for the real inspection and they give me a whole new list. I'm like, well, what did I pay for the other one for? Like you told me those were the things I needed to fix. And now you give me more, you know, additional things to fix. Why wasn't that on the previous, you know, so just everywhere you turn is this, this weird insanity of uh, almost obstacle building. It's like, you're not helping us make safe food for people. You're just, you're just crushing small business. So it was that, that in the end, I think was a large part of what, what contributed to the demise of that, that cafe. Yeah, it was, uh, it was tough when we closed up shop. Um, it was emotional because of the amount of effort that we put in. Uh, Emmett had that business plan building for probably four couple, years, a couple of years. Yeah. And then uh, the effort to go and find the spot, the effort to build it out, and um, it was emotional to close it down. Know that we uh, we took a, a a amount of cash as debt, or yeah, I guess as debt, um, and we we had to work it off in the next few years. But but I mean, if you uh, at what was that 2012? If you said if you talked to me, if you talked to Lim and to Lim of 2012 and said, hey. Uh, and 2021, you're going to be pretty happy with the amount of cryptocurrency that you got. You're going to be pretty happy with a, a career path that you became a, that you went as a software engineer and you jumped uh, up salary. You jumped into a decent salary. 
Um, and then this is also how much money you're going to have in your bank account. And then you're going to have two cars paid off. Um, I wouldn't have believed you back in 2012. There was no way. So, um, in, in essence, things have worked out pretty well. Um, even though with the, with the bad news of the cafe. And, and that I was, mean, I guess that was like an experience you learned from. Oh, I definitely. And just, you know, it's probably worked, was worked trying and like that led you to where you are now, no matter what. Yeah, it was definitely one of those things like you got to do it just because if you don't do it, then you spend your life regretting not having tried. Uh, yeah, uh, that's exactly how I would classify it. Like, I don't regret doing it at all. I would never try to open another restaurant <laughs> unless unless somebody else had a ton of money. They wanted me to open a restaurant for them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's easier in Vegas. Then. Yeah, we're currently in Vegas. Um, yeah, would, would that be easier? Are, are the regulations less strict or like? I don't think so. Um, I mean, the health department here is notoriously difficult also. Um, okay. Partially because there used to be a lot of buffets in Vegas so that it was a heightened uh, concern about foodborne illnesses uh, mm -hmm. with, with the buffets. Um, so, you know, hard to say without walking down that road, but I, I don't know that it would be remarkably different because uh, in the end, Las Vegas isn't that far from California. So a lot of the culture and institutions and uh, regulations we kind of model after, you know, the early Californian, uh, in, uh, you know, city, you know, it's hard to find somebody who was born in Vegas. So likely they came from California. Uh, so you see a very similar business environment in a lot of ways. I would say going through that cafe experience in San Diego, the, um, like if it's 99.9% .9 of restaurants fail, if that's, if that's the statistics, um, and then that it costs anywhere between if you're super cheap and able to do it for like $30,000, which probably nowadays is probably like 50 or 60,000 on the super cheap and on the average might be a hundred to 200 to $300,000. Um, the 99% chance of failure on a $200,000 uh, endeavor just seems like a, a chance that I don't want, want to risk. <laughs> There's better uh, things we can do with your time and money. Like a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, start starting this podcast, I felt like it was a smaller risk, uh, at least especially the upfront cost was a lot smaller, um, getting all the cameras, lighting, um, the, the equipment, the mics and whatnot. It's just the, the risk of not making any money is hot or uh, it's higher or meaning yeah, it's, I can, it's a longer shot. Yeah, it's a, it's a longer shot. I may do this for two years on YouTube before I start to see some type of uh, monetary uh, benefit. It's less painful in the meantime, though. It's a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, uh, the cafe was, was a bit, it was fun, but it was stressful. This, this is a lot more fun all, overall. I don't, I don't feel the stress. There, you also have like a safety net. It's not like, it's probably very different from what you had last time. Yes. Where, like, yeah. A lot of things all of your future seemed like depending on the success of that. Yeah. That uh, was an all or nothing. Yeah. Swing for the fences yeah. <laughs> for sure. For the, um, for your research, I'm just thinking about, uh, that question where I said, did you have any regrets? But, uh, kind of a tangent of that. Um, if people wanted to go do what you're doing, do you have any suggestions for people entering that field that you're doing? To be a genetic research scientist? Yeah. I mean, uh, 
I mean, there's like, I feel like talking to the people who are like leading that field, uh, the labs and, you know, showing interests and, uh, you know, reading about it is, I mean, it's, people are very accessible usually. So if, if there's something like you're interested in and things align with uh, the, the laboratory where you are applied to, uh, it's, you know, pretty uh, doable. And this is like for academia, like all everything else in terms of uh, industry, you, you would need to have a background, pretty solid backgrounds in, uh, in that field before applying or actually being considered. Mm, so, so if you are interested in a particular lab's work, you could potentially email or call them and, and start a, a connection. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. That's like the best way of, uh, of actually getting like, in uh, like in, in that, cause like you, you would just, you know, see what they, they do. And like, if you're interested, if you have room, like, you know, nice. It's like, yeah, it's pretty fairly easy. It's mostly like chatting with people and showing interest. And like, if you excited, uh, like, you know, usually, it's, it's like a pickup basketball basketball game. You just you just head over and talk to some guys on the court. Yeah, I mean that's how it works. It's like uh, another day is connect, like you know connecting with people and uh, yeah. telling what you're interested in and like what you want to do and nice. things like that. Yeah, it's uh, okay. it's like one of the beauty of academia. It's like very uh, an open fluid. communication environment. All right, I'm going to start us in the final questions. If there's any tangents, uh, stories that you want to add in, either any of us, feel free. Um, final questions. First one, what great daily habits do you have? Wait, what? Say again? What great daily habits do you have? Uh, I don't have that many, unfortunately. It's like I always like, feel like very... Uh, like rushed all the time so i'm not like a really good person for that like a great deal you're a slave to like, the mice <laughs> yeah right like <laughs> no what, what, what one good thing like i enjoy is like you know i like talking to other scientists whenever we we had a break and things like that it's always like like you always like underestimate so you think like you're actually taking time away from the bench but you never like taking time away from the science because you was like thinking about it. And so mm. those like, you know, chats with like your colleagues is always like, well, like the new ideas are coming from and that's how you challenge also like some of your hypotheses, you know, you run it by the other people. I think that those are like, at least for the work part, are great habits you have. Mm. So keep talking to other intelligent people to keep your mind mm. in the game. Hopefully like this. Yeah. Podcast. Like, you know, <laughs> Like knock off like the the bad uh, you know ideas or you know there are like things that are like you know it's like you you, you come up with something and like oh this is gonna work and like you know someone's like oh I already tried it last year actually it doesn't work I'm like okay worms don't do that bro not gonna waste my time <laughs> that's actually one of the things like I think biggest limitations for I mean in science because if you, you we all have ideas, right? Like we all come up with things. Yeah. Uh, it's very unlikely, like statistically speaking, that somebody else hasn't tried it. Oh, totally. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes like when you come up with an idea, like if it's not out, it might be because it actually doesn't work and somebody else tried and that's why it's not. And we actually 
oftentimes like so that's what we call like negative results yeah. and there's not like incentives that much for people to you know share those negative results worldwide yeah you don't publish all your dead ends yeah. exactly so like a lot of people like <laughs> i mean but that would be that is actually like a great thing for science that would benefit everybody because that's time and energy that people would oh. put in you know things so we need that, we need to make a dead end journal i mean they, they do exist but like okay. you need to actually publicize <laughs> it so that people actually uh get something out of it oh uh, yeah well uh, unfortunately like you know people are not like really looking at those like if you publish like in the dead end journal yeah uh, well, like you did in data, people are like, okay, so what? Because like people are interested in like what what works, right? Yeah. So um, that's how like journals operate, and that's how like you know you make progress in your career. But yeah. I feel like that's kind of yeah, that's sad that you see that uh, like find better ways to actually get an incentive to actually get people to publish those, those I mean those dead ends. Yeah. That, those are very important that things. Man, when I was 25, I thought I had, inv- I had invented uh, inflatable hot tubs. I'm like, this is the best idea nobody's ever thought of. Inflatable <laughs> hot tubs. If you could just get an inflatable pool and heat up the water and make bubbles and stuff, then you got an inflatable hot tub. How awesome would that be? Because hot tubs are freaking expensive. So like if I can get an inflatable one and then I go look it up and then somebody, I think like Bridgestone or something had patented like 17 years before. I'm like, oh, okay. When I was eight, they already had this idea that's patented. And then I think uh, a couple of years later, yeah. the patent expires, and I started seeing it in the uh, Sky Mall magazines in the airplanes. Like, oh, oh yeah, uh, there's an inflatable hot tub. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Huh. All right. Next question: What do you know or think of cryptocurrency? So I mean, I I have like some knowledge about it. Um, I mean, like long version or short version. Uh, it's a long version. <laughs> Lim loves this topic. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I mean, like, uh, while the, 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 the founder or like the person who started, like, I mean, it's believed to be Satoshi, uh, I forgot his last name, uh, but, uh, I think it's a very interesting concept where like, basically you have a decentralized transactions that don't involve the third party where basically we, I mean, relies on the blockchain uh, technology where basically everybody puts, a, I mean, we have this ledger that people make transactions on that send out to the world. Everybody sees it, agrees it on it, and then you build that next, uh, you confirm that ledger is actually legit, and then we move to the next. And nobody can change that, le- that uh, ledger because you would have to hack all the computers. And because you have like so many computers, Mm-hmm. Uh, the world is unlikely to be able to hack them all to change the, the ledger. And the way it's identified is on using like the SHA-256 uh, function. Oh, the, uh, he knows a lot more than a fancy. little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing. Like it's just, again, like back to statistics. It's yeah. just like, uh, yeah, like it's just like the amount of, like it's a very interesting function where like, whatever you can put in anything and gives you like the same number all the time, but predicting that number is almost impossible. Like statistically it would be like more than like a number of atoms in the universe to actually be able to 
because you would have to go, to go through all the entire process of like trying every single mm-hmm. uh, different uh, combination to get that. So it's so unpredictable that basically that's what makes it safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the amount of computing that would that would that you would require to actually go through all of this to find whatever uh, that number would be just cost prohibitive and also physically in this like in the universe impossible. So that's what makes it like such a great uh, tool. And I find it, I think it's like just I mean like in terms of like safety, I think it's very interesting. I mean, uh, if you do like the brute force work, we still don't know mathematically if it's an unsolvable problem. Because the, ma- the, the, the math that I've done, it's about uh, for conventional computers nowadays to hack one transaction, it would be about uh, the chance of one or it would take one computer about uh, one with 70 zeros. That's how many years. So one, 70 zeros, uh, so I don't know, that's trillion, 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 trillion years. Um, basically the time to the end of the universe. So to hack one transaction is that, that's how improbable it is. Yeah, it's, no, it's very improbable. So, but uh, there's no mathematical theorem yet proving that it's not an easy solvable thing because we still don't know if, if that's, if you can come up with like the number and have, um, you know, a theorem on the sharp function to come back and find uh, something that will actually get that uh, same number. Are, are we talking right. about hacking the private key to an to a, an address? So let's say like you have like the end goal, whatever, like the output of the sharp of the sharp two five six. Are there any uh, mathematical ways other than like brute force, where mm-hmm. it's like trying every single uh, digit, I mean, every single combination to get that number? Yeah. Are there any other ways to actually get back to that first, mm-hmm. uh, to the to the input? Hopefully not. And we don't know, like, yeah. if there is like uh, such a, like, I think mathematically, we, there's no demonstration yet showing that it's impossible Okay. or uh-huh. that it's possible. Yeah. So it might be like a very easy way to solve it, but nobody knows yet. Easy whoever for a math genius. going to be very... <laughs> wow, well, whoever finds it, it's going to be uh, the end of the of that world. Huh, interesting. Yeah, I would kill that person. <laughs> oh, like you can make a lot of money. <laughs> That's why I need to kill them. <laughs> so uh, do you have any cryptocurrency? And don't say how much if you do. No, actually, so I saw, like, I made a mistake of, like, selling them, like, uh, uh, when was that? Like, almost, like, a year ago, I was not, like, uh, I did not uh, stick to it, and I should have, clearly, but now I don't. I'm, like, hoping for, like, the, for, for it to go down a little bit more before I actually Jump back in. It. Jump back in. Um, but, yeah, I don't know, like, yeah. What's, uh, what's your current... Um so it sounds like you you understand cryptocurrency quite a bit, actually. Uh, out of the thirty three guests <laughs> I've interviewed, um, I think you've given probably the second best explanation of. Oh, actually, even that person—he was a software engineer. Um, I forget if I asked him about cryptocurrency. We well, we talked about it. So yeah, I think you've had the second best and the first best outside of a software engineer. So um, 
what are your thoughts now with cryptocurrency? You, you said you want to jump back in, but do you do you think there's a full future for it or what's your thoughts on it? Is it technology? I mean, just the concept of like, you know, going around banks who actually basically charge you for something, like for the transaction, and mm-hmm. who are actually the ones who make the thing legit, because that's, at the end of the day, that's what they, instead of having like the, uh, the blockchain uh, technology, they are the ones who actually are like guaranteeing that things are mm-hmm. legit, right? That's, they do that transaction, but you always have to go through a third party. So I think like in the long run, no matter what, banks are gonna probably like losing that importance because you don't really, you probably won't need them anymore. Mm. Uh, but I think like since everything is already pretty much monetar- uh, like digitalized, uh, it's, I think like a lot of like states could already start building like a, uh, I think the, I think China has started to build its uh, own uh, uh, money, which would be uh, digital money. Yeah, I heard that too. Money. And who? No, I heard that too. Heard that too. Yeah, so China, and I think that there was like other, uh, I forgot what other country, there's like several of them like already started to, uh, Oh, like the uh, uh, Sweden, mm. the the crown. Um, so they also start like to uh, they want to make it digital for like mm. at least for like very a small scale, uh, um, you know, sales and transactions. Yeah. So yeah. I think states can be like that good uh, intermediary who can do that, and um, I mean things can get there eventually. The thing is like. I mean, it's always like an arbitrary value you assign for like cryptocurrency and whatever, like the, the real life thing, like a dollar or something like that. But I think like overall, probably like China's push towards uh, that is going to be very interesting because you will, you might end up with like, I mean, I think like for their perspective is avoiding to use the dollar as a, you know, as that, because uh, it is a limiting factor for like exchanges. And also, like you are under the rule of the extraterritorial rules of the United States for whatever, like you do. So I think that probably that from their side, that's like a big thing. Because like if you can now like have one billion people using only like that digital money, and and have like other people actually uh, exchange with you from other countries and sell goods in China or like how China export things, that can actually change a lot of things for the United States. Like the dollar itself, mm. so I do think you, that's. Oh, go ahead. Another go ahead. option to think about. What do you think would happen first? Uh, massive biological warfare, global ma- massive biological <laughs> biological warfare, or uh, mass adoption of cryptocurrency. Um, I think probably like the like the first one. <laughs> What's more likely of these unlikely things? <laughs> Wait, did you say the first one? Mass biological warfare? Yeah, probably that. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no, but like, I, I don't know. Like, I think like it's probably going to take a lot of time to uh, get people to use crypto. Uh, but the fact is, I mean, now you have more and more like places where like you can buy with crypto. Um, but the, the, one of the things that's kind of problematic is always like whoever does the transactions are still like charging. I mean, yeah. Uh, 
what was the name of the the company that just went public two weeks ago? Coinbase. Coinbase. Yeah, yeah. We, we make we, we make money out of out of it. So there's still a transaction. So it's like a bank in the, in some sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, well, Coinbase is charging the transactions to, uh, well, mainly to change your fiat to cryptocurrency, and then. There is a fee if you're like you're trading Ethereum for Bitcoin, um, but I feel like Coinbase's fee is overall small in the big scheme of things. It is a lot per f- transaction, but in the big scheme of things for mass adoption, I feel like it's a small thing to 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 be in the way. Um, anyways, I, yeah, random. Yeah, yeah, but similarly, banks don't charge you very much for a checking account. So small fees over many transactions or small fees over, you know. Yeah, I think that's like one of the things that needs to be knocked out, like make it actually completely independent. Mm. Yeah. Like we should we should be any reason why like we like there's like a fee for those things. Yeah, you could send uh say some cryptocurrency from one address to another. You do pay the transaction fee to the miners, right? To the to the network so that the computers that the blockchain is being distributed to and run on have some incentive, some, some payment to do the work, right. To, to run the electricity and have the hardware. Yeah. I'm actually wondering like in the long term, like depending like how high the price is going to be, if that's going to be a viable uh, amount of if the energy taken to actually mine one is going to outweigh value yeah so there's there's uh bitcoin and ethereum are proof of work which is the mechanism for the mining servers to use the electricity to do their their mining um math and so they have a cryptographic transaction work yeah and there's there's other proofs like proof of stake which is i think i'm thinking should be the future uh I could be wrong, but that seems to be where I see a lot of the the new coins are moving to: Ethereum, Cardano, Al- Algorand, uh, Solana. But proof of stake brings the electricity cost way down, way, way, way down, like to the point where it's it's uh, as far as I understand, it's it's uh, not a factor in the whole the whole scheme of it. So, meaning proof of stake instead of having money that you purchase hardware to do the mining proof of stake you have some of that coin and you stake it and then your stake will validate a transaction if other stakers around say that you validated a wrong transaction that network will charge you a fee for validating that incorrectly so you will be slashed they call it um, and charge the fee for that Uh, so you will lose part of your stake and if you lose enough of your stake then you get kicked out um i I'm not sure if there's there's even a point. Oh yeah, there's even a point. You don't even have to lose your whole stake. You could lose some of your stake, and I I forget if it's on the Ethereum 2.0 is three slashes and you're out. I might be wrong in that. Don't quote me. So you get slashed three times. They kick you off the network for good. Um, yeah. So if proof, oh. proof of stake is the new new wave that hopefully will be less electricity. I see. What is your thought about like the fact that the shaft function was like started like by the CIA? Was it a CIA? Um, I don't remember. Because I think that was just for like, uh, like I mean, encrypting uh, purposes, and that's 
how uh, the first one. Uh oh, we're losing. Like CA heard us. I mean, kind of showing that I was like a great player. <laughs> oh, you're back. I have already like uh, encrypting everything. Um, yeah, <laughs> just I don't got their attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know enough history of that. I what I thought even to take it a step back further because RSA encryption is a part of that. I think SHA-256 is the is the type under RSA. So RSA is the the it's the the formula of how to do it. RSA and then SHA-256 is the is the difficulty level of RSA. So there's SHA as far as I understand there's SHA-256 SHA-512, SHA-1024, uh, SHA-2048. Yeah. And, and there's even, SHA's not even, there's others, other ones other than SHA also. Uh, Keck is one, I think. Uh, then, but so RSA, let's let's take it back further. RSA, I think, was back in World War uh, One and World War II uh, when they're just trying to encrypt messages and they have to do it by hand. Now we have machines that do it so fast that you got to pick a super huge prime numbers underneath RSA. Uh, wait, is that, that's actually underneath SHA, which is underneath RSA. Um, so you're choosing super large prime numbers to to do these calculations that are so tough that it's virtually improbable, impossible, virtually impossible, virtually impossible for a computer nowadays to hack it. So I think the CIA, um, if I'm correct, I think what they were doing is they were trying to get, uh, cryptographers through the years especially even world war ii world war one they're trying to find cryptographers that knew this math to encrypt messages decrypt, encrypt and decrypt messages for uh people that they're sending the messages when the secret spy stuff yeah whether they're in germany or whatnot during world war ii um so then as far as i understand the history then lead after uh into the 19 50s and 60s and um they're still using crypto cryptographers and during cia time they're they're just trying to find the best cryptographers um so it's almost like a a um like um interviewing uh new candidates that they may hire so they just create these shahs and they just make it tougher and tougher so i i from my understanding i think that's the background it's just they made it tougher and tougher and they're just looking for the best cryptographers because as technology moves they just make it uh, they need to use it for computers and they need to make it more complicated. They need people to understand that. So that that's my guess with the CIA stuff. Oh, not that the CIA has some uh, nefarious interest in cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I was like, I was like, I was like thinking about it. It's like, what, what if they already know how to get back to the other side? If they, yeah. I mean, the, the way I would uh, guess the answer to that is there's so many mathematicians around the world. Like, uh, I mean, you're talking about Ethereum who has Vitalik Baterian, uh, Cardano, uh, Richard Hotchinskin, these mathematicians or people that have a heavy math background, they probably would have had some either that they would have either figured out the answer or they would have found a way to create a, to know theoretically that it's possible. Yes. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Now, yeah, it's a, there's no way to answer your question, I guess, Milos, the way you say that. <laughs> uh, but I'm hoping from the global decentralized nature of 
with blockchain. There's so many mathematicians that haven't figured it out yet. So hopefully the answer is there isn't an answer yet. So, yeah, so the CIA or the NSA or any uh, organization like that could conceivably have cracked the math to decode cryptocurrency, but highly unlikely. That's what I think, yeah. And uh, even if they had, then you would have to think, do they have an interest in doing that or just keep it a secret Yeah, and wait till there's a need because their mission is not anti-cryptocurrency right so the, what is the cia's mission what is the, the nsa's job you know they're probably focused on their whatever their primary goals and directives are and it's probably not anti-money stuff if, if you uh have 15 <laughs> 15 minutes free sometime uh google uh how does rsa encryption work and there's a 15 minute video i think he goes pretty i think it's 15 minutes i don't think it was 45 um uh, he goes in depth on breaking down how you get two prime numbers. You do all this math. Uh, he gives you the equation and then you get a private key and a public key and how you, you hash something, uh, you, how you encrypt with your public key and how you decrypt your, your private key. And hopefully that might make you feel a little bit better with this encryption. Could, stuff. could you put a link to the video? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'll find a link and then I'll, 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 I'll put that in the description. Um, do you, do you happen to have any questions on cryptocurrency on where, um, I'm a software engineer, so I get, uh, pretty deep into cryptocurrencies, looking at white papers. I'm not, I'm, I, my disclaimer is I'm not a financial advisor. Um, this is not financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. Um, I am a software engineer. I do look at this stuff and, um, I feel like I have a pretty, I have a better fundamental understanding than most, but I do, uh, I I don't know everything. So when I look at these white papers, I don't, some of the equations that they throw in on how they're doing the mining algorithm, it's, it's over my head. Um, but I think I'm able to decipher a little bit more information than the, the average person. So um, do you happen to have questions on cryptocurrencies in general or a specific cryptocurrency or anything? No, like, I mean, not that much. I, I just find it interesting. Like, yeah, those encryptions are like pretty much like a lot of, most of the transactions uh, that are done, like whether it's like, like banking or like just, you know, encryption for like uh, computers to computers, they all rely on those, uh, on those uh, algorithms. And uh, it's kind of like interesting how like, like, yeah, everything like uh, uh, revolves around that. And like, I was like, you know, it's always like, like interesting to think about there might be like an easy solution that's, you know, <laughs> That's how maths work, you know. It took us like, well, like to demonstrate some of like the, um, like the firm, uh, uh, you know, like all of like those like big um, um, questions in maths. Sometimes like took like very easy ways to be demonstrated, uh, but just like it had to be seen by someone in a particular angle to solve it. I yeah. think it's like, uh, like, because the thing is, like, it's interesting. It's like, there's no mathematical proof to say that this is like, uh, like, it's an unsolvable uh, um, problem. And but on the other side, there's no like, uh, uh, there's no proof that it's actually solvable. I mean, you know, things like that. That actually, I think it's always interesting. Yeah, mathematically I, fascinating. Yeah, and I mean. Bitcoin's been out since 2009, so we're looking at a 12-year track record where Bitcoin has never has not yet seen a hacked transaction or or wallet that we know of. Um, all the hacks that the news likes to um, uh, 
like sensationalized. Yes, yes, sens- that's exactly the word I was looking for. <laughs> um, when those when those hacks happens, actually mostly exchanges. So an exchange, just like any any company that has IT infrastructure in, infrastructure, if a hacker gets in behind the walls and gets to your server, they're going to get the keys or the passwords or whatever. So these exchanges had their private keys on the servers. The hackers got in, took the private keys, and took all the all the cryptocurrency. Um, so the only known hacks are that, not fundamental hacks on the RSA SHA-256. Yeah, SHA yeah. Yep, yeah, exactly. I, I heard somebody uh, said once, it's the ultimate bounty prize. Oh, yeah. Like if you're a mathematician or a hacker, you want to you wanna hack Bitcoin because <laughs> the prize is all this money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think another... Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Pretty infinite at this point, yeah. Yeah. I think it's super interesting thing that I get. I'm I'm very optimistic about cryptocurrency and blockchain is the uh, truth by consensus mechanism of it. That's something that we humans have never had. Um, there was there's no way to build it before. So this provides a truth by consensus, which is is a huge paradigm shift to everything. It could be. It could be. I say it could be because it's up to humans to use this tool. It's a fantastic tool. It's the best hammer that we'll ever have. Uh, well, ever, yeah. It's the best I've hammer. Seen yet. <laughs> yeah, it's the best hammer I've ever seen, and it's up to humans to pick up that hammer and use it. But this truth by consensus could change everything. From if the government wanted to put their their voting on the blockchain, or or their bill of uh, bill of rights, their 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 constitution, whatever laws, and if they want to have their judge and lawyers abide by these rules on the blockchain and vote by your wallet or your identification by blockchain. It's just this paradigm shift that's amazing. So I suggest all friends uh, to buy cryptocurrency if they can. I'm not a financial advisor. Don't listen to me. This is educational <laughs> purposes. I have to say this because I don't understand why the laws have it this way that we have to say this, but it's silly. But if friends could get five or $10,000 in, buy, hold for seven to 10 years, and hopefully maybe you could retire by then. Well, that sounds like a financial yeah. advice. It is financial advice, but it's not financial <laughs> advice. It's not financial advice. But bye. <laughs> yeah, I do remember, like when you when you hear the stories, like people who are like, you know, trading bitcoins for like um, a coffee, like literally a bitcoin for a coffee, like like oh, in the past, fifteen yeah. years ago, whenever it was like, just you know, like oh, damn, fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, today it's what it's fifty fifty seven thousand. I forget the today's price on Bitcoin. It's crazy, but there's there's other coins too. If you do buy, I suggest Ethereum. Uh, that's probably the, the top horse I would suggest. Um, I actually don't suggest Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, I only suggest it if you want to um, diversify your project, your pro- portfolio, not project, your portfolio. Um, but as a as technology, Bitcoin is, in my opinion. Uh, far inferior to Ethereum and other new coins that are coming out. Um, I just, it's just the masses of people don't understand cryptocurrency. So the technology of Bitcoin is 2009 and they haven't really upgraded a whole lot. Um, there's a lot new. Yeah, co- but like if, if the shaft, like if the, um, the hash function is like, that unsolvable, then there should be no issue. Then. Yeah, and and also the the SHA thing upgrades. Uh, uh, so earlier when I said there's 256, 512, 1024, 2048, those all scale. So if you get quantum computers that come out, you could just go to the next 
you go to the hardest SHA that that computer could handle to encrypt it. Yeah, but what, what if you come up with like the, the quantum computer before? Like, I don't think IBM or Google will let, tell you like they came up with one before, like actually. I think that would be the first thing I would use it for. There. <laughs> Stay on the mind. <laughs> that, that's yeah, right. First, and then I will come up, sell everything, and then come out of the world and be like, hey, by the way, there's a quantum computer, I can hack it. Yeah, I don't know the uh, the validity of it. There are coins that are coming out that saying they're quantum proof. Um, I don't know the validity of it. So they are choosing certain alg- uh, certain encryption like SHAs that are harder for quantum computers. And it's probably not even SHA. It's a different type of inc- uh, encryption. I, I don't even know the wording. They're, they're, they're using a different type. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there truly are. Well, we we need a quantum computer from Google to to test that out. I just uh, so I drive around a lot for my work, and uh, on the radio, NPR had a uh, somebody talking about quantum computers, and like, yeah, we're really struggling. We we can't get it to count. It's good at doing certain things, but it it can't count one, two, three. So <laughs> so I think uh, quantum computers are very young, uh, still very much research. Like you can't go buy a quantum computer. Even if you had a billion dollars, you'd need a, a research team to try to concoct one, and and it'd be. I think very... they were able to do apply it for very specific tasks that are very um, that unique purely, functions. I mean, yeah, great, great, great for like very, very particular tasks, but not like it's not like just like a, re- a regular computer where you can just yeah you know, put a function and just. Uh, it won't be replacing that. your laptop anytime soon. No. I think we have a long way to go. All right. Next question. What's the biggest problem for humans? What should they do to fix it? (laughs) I think like the biggest problem is probably going to be climate change. And with that comes all like the also, uh, you know, infectious diseases like that we experienced last year. And this is is just going to get more and more uh, common. You, no, you see more pandemics started. coming, huh? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's not like uh, you know, it, 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 it's gonna happen. Yeah. It's not like uh, it's just like being prepared for the next big one or like what's gonna happen. Yeah, that's like you know has to do with our ways of uh, how how to like you know how we globally interact. And I think it's important to be able, I think like we missed a big occasion here to have like a, like the um, uh, OMS, uh, like the WHO, like in French is OMS, like WHO uh, to actually, you know, take a step forward and be able to, you know, coordinate worldwide Mm -hmm. the response and have like, at the end of the day, like if, other countries are not safe. Nobody's safe. Yeah, you cannot prevent like diseases and things like that to to spread to other countries because you know we are. Sorry, the bird is uh, going crazy. <laughs> uh, Doesn't like all this pandemic talk. <laughs> it's like no, but that's the thing. Is like it's uh, we rely on like globalization heavily, and and you know we saw like a lot of like flows and also like. Um, the greatness about globalization, but also like a lot of like flows about yeah. uh, what, what it means. But I think global global warming is probably like gonna have like way more 
by consequences. Because if you think about it, it's just, you know, changing like the temperature in some areas of the world will, uh, you know, result in like a lot of people dying of hunger, but also a lot of like populations having to move. Like we're talking about like, I think some of the uh, uh, figures were like in the hundreds of millions of mm. migrant migrants people who will have to leave their places in the next couple of like 10 years or so in the very near future, because where they will be, there won't be enough uh, supply or like things to survive. So that's going to be like a huge. Uh, yeah. So something as simple as right. uh, a change in the rain patterns makes it difficult to grow enough food for, for certain places. So why would you live in a place where you can't grow enough food? Is that kind of a real yeah, basic I mean, I way to... Like, you have like places that are densely populated where they're already uh, struggling mm -hmm. for food, for access and and water. You know, very basic things that you know we, we, we take for granted. But mm -hmm. even for us, soon, like I feel like even like you know California have like many droughts. I mean, mm -hmm. the water supply relies on like very. I mean, just like uh, it's if you think about how fragile this this is. It's you just need like one thing to go down, and then like it's going to affect like hundreds of thousands of people, and if not millions, like just like at this very small scale. And I think that's something that can be seen very soon. And but like just like on a global on a global like scale, like you know, global warming is definitely going to uh, it's going to jack things up, make a lot of impact. I, I thought it was interesting that I found a YouTube video. I think uh, so. Someone had some recording from the 1960s of, of a professor talking about goal, uh, climate change coming up and that we should do something. And they posted it on YouTube and I'm just watching a 1960 video of somebody talking about climate change that we should do something. And yeah. we're in 2021 now and it feels like, it feels like the world's uh, not doing enough, unfortunately. I, I, I know we're a bunch of humans. We all got our own agendas and it's kind of tough to get us all on board on one thing, but uh, it feels like climate change or the the efforts to prevent it, it seems like it's not, I don't know, my opinion feels like it's not there. I mean, you see it like with like the pandemic, uh, people were not willing to uh, actually make the changes that were required for like everybody mm. uh, not to be affected, like to, uh, you know, flatten the curve and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's I think it's a challenging thing and it has to, it's not going to come from the people, like it can start, but it's not enough. It has to go, come from like the top and like, you know, like, like I don't think people realize how bad uh, this can go. Yeah. It's just like, and as you said, like people from the seventies were talking about that and people still think it's like something uh, that's not a thing or like it's debatable. I mean, in the scientific community, it's not, it's been like, like almost 40 50 years it's not a debate anymore it's definitely not it's a just, debate so the only debate that we have here is just like oh how how bad is gonna be yeah or like like where where are the like it's like oh we're we gonna go plus x uh uh degrees or we're we gonna go like slightly less it's like we not like there's no question anymore about so it's just like now like all the debate is about like the models and like what we think is gonna fit the best by the end of the day, like it's, you know, everybody agrees this is happening and no yeah. change is going to be 
yeah, for anybody that, anybody that doesn't want to believe the science, there's there are some places where you can go look. Like here in Vegas, uh, we're right next to the Hoover Dam, and you can go see that the Hoover Dam ain't full of water because the, the the rain has changed, the snow in Colorado has changed, so that we're not getting enough water like we used to to fill up the Hoover Dam. Uh, so that's a huge impact. Um, you can ask, uh, you know, businesses that rely on seasonal changes. For example, ski resorts. Ski re- ski resorts will tell you like. Hey, we have records. Our season used to be this long. Mm. Now our seasons are a lot shorter because there ain't as much snow as there used to be. Yeah. So that's a very easy, measurable thing you can see with your eyes. And uh, even places like Miami, like, you know, Miami, as the years go on, they get more and more flooding. And you go, hey, you know, this city was built here. And we got records. We can show you this city floods a lot now. Yeah. You know, those are very undeniable you know, real world examples that if somebody doesn't want to look at data, you can go look with your own eyes and see these places where things are getting screwed up. An interesting one that uh, the wine sommelier brought up uh, last time where he said uh, in that certain region, I forget what uh, what country it was, where they couldn't grow grapes because their their region was too dry or too hot. Um, but now because of climate change, that region is able to grow grapes and they're able to produce wine. Mm-hmm. So it's a, yeah, weird. we're a wine region now. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy <Yeah>. it while it lasts. <laughs> All right, next question. Um, think of at least two friends that should do this co- conversation. Call them out. Oh, who would you like to see on this podcast? Is that- I mean, like a couple of like, I'm thinking more like about scientists maybe because I think it's always like uh, interesting to see. Uh, maybe like one of my friends, uh, Damien Villier, he's a... Uh, he does a lot of like um, uh, super resolution microscopy where basically you can look at single molecules and you can track the single molecules going into the universe. Oh, wow. Uh, and I have another friend, uh, she's also French, um, uh, Céline Riera. She's, she has a lab in LA. Uh, so she's uh, her own uh, uh, independent investigator. And she studies a, a lot of like uh, metabolic changes uh, disease related, uh, related to metabolism. So I think this more science is always fun. Awesome. Yeah. No, I love, I love science stuff. Like, uh, I spend, I don't watch any, um, like TV shows, typical TV shows. I watch all documentaries, like all, I, I pretty much, I don't know anything when people talk about like movies that are out or game of Thrones or, uh, uh whatever the, uh, t- yeah. Anyway, any Cap- of the pop Captain America's black now. <laughs> Is he? Yeah. <laughs> FYI. And uh, so I watch documentaries and try to find scientists to listen to all all day long. That's kind of my thing. So yeah, I would love to contact those people and see if they'd be willing to do a podcast. I just, I just want to know how to speed up my metabolism <laughs> <laughs> safely. Yeah. Magic pill. <laughs> Not meth. <laughs> Renee said meth. <laughs> Okay, last question. Last official final question. Um, tell me in a few sentences or less what this conversation was like. If you've had, if you've done a podcast or interview before like this, describe the biggest difference. I may use this answer in a collage video for new potential guests. I mean, I like the expectations. Like, I haven't done any uh, things like that before. But like, I thought it was like, uh, like a pleasant conversation that like we would have uh, back in San Diego when I come back from lab and talk about science and what you guys are up to. So yeah. like a natural conversation for me. Awesome. Cool. No, this is good practice. Cause uh, now that you're published, you're going to be on TV shows and stuff. I don't know. About <laughs> that. And then, and then eventually a Nobel like, prize. Um, 
But I mean, there's like a couple of articles that came out about about that that's coming out in the in the press. I think I, I hope it gets the attention it deserves, uh, especially for those people who are in desperate needs of you know treatments. I hope this pans out. Yeah, uh, we will definitely be pushing that towards the clinic. So hopefully we'll see some uh, results in the next couple of years. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Any closing thoughts? No, great to see you, Milos. Uh, thank you for the work that you do. Uh, hopefully, you're you're making medical science advance and and saving lives. So, great, great to see you again. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you for everything. Of course. Cheers, guys. Woo! Yeah, to Nicola. <laughs> <laughs>